Hello and welcome to the Michael Clark Show podcast, where every Wednesday I'll bring you an interview with a different special guest. Many will be from the world of sport. All of them have a story worth sharing. In a time when doom and gloom is all too easy to find, this is a place where we'll be promoting the positive. So I hope you'll keep me company each week as I explore where our guests get their motivation and inspiration from to succeed. Welcome back. It is episode eight of the podcast and it's a special number for this man. He wore it for a good part of his career, certainly. Uh, No stranger to anybody from the same neck of the woods as me. He's played for two of Northern Ireland's biggest teams. Northern Ireland's two biggest teams, they'll make sure to say. Linfield and Glen Torren, but he's doing a brilliant job out in Canada, and we're going to be talking about that. A warm welcome, Daryl Fordyce. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, Michael. It's good to talk to you. And first of all, how's life in Canada? I can tell you it's still rainy and miserable here. <laughs> well, it's just started to snow today again. I thought we'd get rid of the snow, and uh, look outside now, and it's just started to snow again. Um, but yeah, I, th- I thought the snow was gone. We we're trying to get onto the onto the pitch soon, and but again, it's it's started to drop again. That is something probably takes a bit of getting used to, considering you know when you're back home, two inches of snow and the whole country grinds to a halt. That doesn't happen in Canada. <laughs> Not at all. Everyone has winter tires on here, and then the tractors are out clearing the snow first thing. But uh, it actually rained here. It was it two days ago? It rained here, uh, first time, and I remember sending my song. When was the last time you seen rain? Because it doesn't rain often here. Um, maybe June a little bit, but again, it snows, but nothing comes to a stop unless it's really. First thing that struck me is you've kept your accent. You know, you may be away from home, but uh, you've still kept that part of it. You haven't gone all Graham McDowell or anything like that. <laughs> oh, well, I've, uh, I've learned to uh, adjust depending on who I'm speaking to. Um, so, yeah, whenever I speak to people back home, I can speak normal a lot quicker. When I'm here, I have to slow it down and sort of put on a, a little Canadian accent and use certain words like like a diaper instead of a nappy, things like that, you know. <laughs> that must be one of the strange things when you move abroad anywhere, I guess, and you're trying to settle in and not just even communicating with your teammates, going to the shops and anything and things that you say confuse people. <laughs> yeah. Um, like I remember when we first came here, we wanted some... Uh, aluminium foil, tin foil, and I was asking the, the shop worker, like, have you any aluminium? Didn't understand a word I said. I was like, uh, tin foil? Still didn't know. And then eventually I found out they say uh, aluminium. So <laughs> if you say aluminium foil, you'll get what you want. You know, so just simple things like that. And um, as I said, even you go in and where's the nappies? They don't say nappies. Uh, they don't really say, I'm speaking because I have a kid now, so. Uh, a pram, things like that. They're called strollers, and so you got you got to get used to it. Garbage, all that stuff. I <laughs> got uh, really confused in Tim Hortons because I was talking when I was in Vancouver, and I said, "Oh, that's grand," and they were like, "Oh, it isn't, but we can get you that." And I was like, "What?" And I didn't realize. I was just meaning, obviously, it's fine. But the the girl served me had no clue what was going on. <laughs> the grand that just means a uh, a bigger size. It's like getting to Starbucks and asking for a grande. So they, they do the same thing. So it, it was just one of those awkward moments where something as innocent as me trying to say, yep, that's perfectly fine, thank you, made her panic that she'd served me wrong. Uh, don't worry, I have those every other day, those awkward moments, especially when we go through 
a drive-through, like a Tim Hortons or Starbucks drive-through. And um, if me and my wife's in the car, I'll say, can I have, say, uh, two coffees? And they always think I'm saying three. So it's like, okay, three coffees. I'm like, no, two coffees. And they're like, three. So the amount of times I just leave it, get up to the counter to pay. And usually it's, say, $5 for a coffee, and they go $15. I just say, no, two. So I can actually do the actual, use my fingers. And then they cancel the other one. That happens all the time with me and my wife. Well, I can understand you perfectly well, obviously. So this is going to go swimmingly. Um, I was saying to you, just before we came on, I was chatting to a really good mate of yours, Albert Watson. And I didn't realise that you went as far back as you did, because obviously we'll be talking about your playing career, but you you grew up together. Yeah. um, You know, we we both came from Sandy Row. Um, Obviously, Albert lived in White Abbey for a while. Uh, with his uh, with his mum, but you know I used to always see him in San Diego all the time, and uh, the two of us played in St Andrews together uh, for a few years, and then whenever uh, I get held back to my proper year, that's whenever Albert moved on up the years. But we've known each other for like since we were kids, and you know I speak to him every other day still, Um, and we we played in we played at Linfield together, we played in Edmonton together, and you know. It's fair to say that the two of us miss each other's uh, banter, so to speak, and, and just being around each other, I guess. Um, but no, he's a fantastic friend, one of my best friends. And, you know, he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a friend that you can ask for for advice. You know, one of those guys, whenever you're, you're stuck in a little, you, you don't know what, say you're stuck with something, you can just throw it out there to him and he'll, he'll give his advice and it's always proper a proper leader, I would say. Um, you know, so I could speak to him as a as a friend and as a as a teammate still, really. But yeah, I, I do miss the big man and I can't wait to see him again. I think you dug him out of more than a few holes in his time as well. Is it fair to say he takes things at a quite a slow pace and maybe, you know, you're the more organized one? Oh uh, yeah, whenever we were roommates it was me that was waking him up in the morning. Um <laughs> but well fairly he would like I would go to bed. I, I usually like to go to bed around 10, 11. Now it's around 9 or 10 because of a kid. But yeah, whenever we were roommates and away trips, uh, I would go to bed at 11. I would wake up at 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock to go to the toilet and he's still watching his iPad. So that's why in the morning I would have to, whenever I get up, I was ready and all, then I would give him a shake. Um, but the thing with Albert is you, you don't really, you don't get Albert until he has his coffee. When he hasn't got his coffee in him, there's no point in even looking at him or talking to him. Um, so every morning I would just say, Albert, it's, it's 8.30. You need to get breakfast with training in a couple of hours. And like, we wouldn't really say a word until he actually got his coffee in his hand. But no, we, we had some fabulous times on away trips with Edmonton and some great times. And, you know, we lent on each other for supporting and just, you know, a lot of our away trips were in America, two boys from Northern Ireland. Just in America, it was great. I imagine it was. Um, apparently, he nearly missed a flight one morning when he was rooming with Proctor, and uh, you basically saved the day. Yeah, well, he actually did miss the flight. One of the flights. Um, <laughs> the it was me and Robert Garrett was actually on loan. We had him on loan from Linfield as well, good friend. And I was rooming with Robert, and Albert was rooming with David Proctor. He he uh, he's in Scotland, but. Uh, you know, the, the two of them slept in and 
we try to wake them up and by the time that we did wake them up uh, we used to have rental cars so we would have like those family cars um, on away trips and then the manager just says right let's go but he didn't really give them five minutes and he ended up the two of them actually ended up missing the flight and they had to take a different route back because whenever we were in we were in Fort Lauderdale actually so we had to take sometimes it was a minimum of two flights sometimes it was three flights um, but then them two ended up I don't know where they ended up I think they ended up in Houston and then they, they finally made it back the next day I think my goodness uh, some amount of traveling involved in that but if we take you right back you were traveling away from home when you were what like 10 years of age going over to Rangers and stuff so you must have got used to it quite quickly yeah um, so I was with St Andrews and Joe Kincaid he ran St Andrews and he was also the, the Glasgow Rangers scout so uh, I just remember one Christmas morning um, I was only 10 and actually I think it was only 9 um, it had been 10 my birthday the week after Christmas so it was Christmas morning and um, my dad says to me if I've got one of your best presents, but it's I can't give it to you for three days. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he says, Look, Glasgow Rangers want you over. I'm like, what for? To watch a game or what? And he says, no, they want you over on trial. Um, you're going over with Joe Kincaid and um, a couple of the other boys that were there um, from St. Andrews. And I went over and, you know, I went from 10 till I was 16 years of age. And... You know, Rangers would have flown me over every other week, every Easter, every just after Christmas. You know, I'd be over for a couple of weeks and uh, take me to preseason tours. Like I, I went to Holland and stuff, and we ended up we made the final once against Barcelona. And Messi played, Piquet played, Fabregas played, and you know, wow. Barcelona destroyed us. I only found that out a few years ago. I just remember the game that Barcelona destroyed us two 0 in the final. Um, but my Rangers team, we had a very good team. We beat Arsenal and Feyenoord and uh, Club Rouge on the way. Uh, but once we played Barcelona, you know, I says to my dad, we didn't get the ball off them. We couldn't get the ball. Uh, and we actually thought some of their players were ringers. But <laughs> it happened that they were just so good, too quick, too technical. Um, but yeah, that's I used to go over 10 years of age and a couple of times I would fly over and uh, one of the coaches would forget to pick me up. You know, so I'd be in Glasgow Airport as a 10-year-old, <laughs> 11-year-old waiting. And back then, there was no mobiles. You had to use a payphone. So I'd get on the payphone and hit the um, reverse charges to my mum's house and tell my dad, hey, there's no one here. Then he had to call Joe, and then Joe would call Rangers, and they were like, oh, we totally forgot about it. That's unbelievable. But yeah, it let you grow up a lot quicker. I imagine it did, stuck in Glasgow Airport on your own. <laughs> that is remarkable who you played against. That, so many footballers, when you talk to them, have stories like that, don't they? When they say, you know, because you don't remember the players, because at that point they're not world famous. Lionel Messi's just some other kid who's really good at football. It's only, I guess, now you can look back and think, I can't believe I was on the same pitch as one of, if not the greatest ever player. Yeah, um, it's the same as their... Northern Ireland under 17s, we made the, the finals in the Euros. And obviously, we played France, and they had Ben Arfa and Nazri, and then Benzema actually came off the bench. But uh, I just remember all the boys, like, we, we made the finals, and we thought we were 
we were good players. You know, I was with a Premier League club and we had some quality players in the team. And then when we played France and we seen Ben Arfa play, like Nasri played, Benzema came on the bat. It was just another level. And that's whenever you actually open your eyes up and realise, hold on a minute, maybe I'm not that good. There's another level to this game. Um, but yeah, you, you don't see until you see these guys playing in the Champions League, playing in the Premier League, playing in La Liga, whatever it is on TV. And But then whenever you actually do play them at a younger age, you can realise, oh my God, that's just a completely another level in Spain, France. And and I guess that's what we're trying to do in Northern Ireland um, in terms of youth development. Um, but again, it's it's not just technical, it's everything, intelligence. It's just you're thrown into the deep end against these guys. But it's it's a great experience and you can learn a lot from them. And Northern Ireland continues to produce so many good players. At your age group, I'm thinking when you were going over to Rangers, must have been like Stephen Davis, Chris Brump, maybe that was that, that the right ballpark sort of guys that were there? Yeah, they were older than me, but it was always me, Stephen Davis, Chris Brunt, the three of us would have flown over together. And then you had the younger boys, Robert Gard, Chris Casement, Trevor Carson, Michael Carvel. Um, they were the young, they were younger boys that would have went over together. But you know, there's many times I would have went over with just me and Chris Brunt maybe, and we had to share a double bed, uh, <laughs> or went over with went over with Davon and having to share a double bed. Uh, depending, they used to put us in the Sherbrooke Castle Hotel. So it just depends on what room they gave you. Um, but again, Chris ended up going to, uh, I think it was Middlesbrough he went to, and Davo ended up going to um, Aston Villa. And then eventually I went to Portsmouth. Uh, because around that time, Dick Avocat was the manager of Rangers, and then he left and you know, the youth system and all the coaches, they were all filled. They were all Dutch people. Uh, and then there was, there was a big, tra- there was, they were going through a big transition. And then that's when the three of us ended up uh, signing for another team. Uh, mine would have been a, a couple of years later. But uh, no, I remember, especially going over with, with Stephen Davis. And, you know, I, I was probably the same size as him and he was three years older than me, two or three years older than me. But... I used to get to watch some of his sessions and he could get to watch some of mine. And I just remember one of the indoor sessions and he's just, just taking a piss. Um, he was <laughs> class. Um, Joe Kincaid used to teach us all the different tricks, the step overs, the Cruyff turns. And Eva was just pulling them out left, right and center. And because he was small, he had that agility to get away from players. And I just remember uh, whenever he came, when he, whenever he was, I think it was 15, I was sitting outside the room for about three hours. We were trying to get him to sign a contract. And that's whenever he was in talks with Rangers and Aston Villa. And he ended up going to Aston Villa. Um, now he's back at Rangers and still playing as if he's 20. That's amazing, isn't it? And, and look at what he's just yeah. achieved as well, winning the league with them. And, you know, Stephen Gerrard as his manager. It's, it's the stuff of dreams for, for Stephen. And so, so pleased for him, as I'm sure you are too. When you were... At, you know, at that stage in your career and you're seeing obviously his ability, but you're seeing him get signed and some of the other guys moving on. Is that an uncertain time for a young person? Is it, is it kind of, I don't know, a bit scary, the, the make or break years? You actually don't even think about it. Um, you know, it doesn't feel like make or break whenever you're that age. Uh, whenever I look back on it, you know, I remember uh, before I went to, to Portsmouth, Rangers were going through again the transition with the coaches and 
I always wanted to sign for Rangers. Uh, whenever I was younger, you know, Arsenal wanted me over in trial and even Manchester United. I'm a Manchester United fan um, as well. And I, I just wanted to be at Rangers because I knew all the players. Um, I actually still speak to some of the players now and from such a young age. Um, and some of them are actually coaches in the, in the youth program at Rangers. But I just wanted... They were sponsored by Nike, and I get I get phone Nike, and they send me over, send me a bunch of Nike stuff to my house. So at a young age, when you're 12, 13, it was amazing. And I always wanted to stay with Rangers, but uh, Ryan McCann, uh, Grant McCann's brother, Ryan obviously played for Crusaders and stuff. He was at Rangers. He was already in the youth team at that time, and he's from San Diego as well. And when it was around that stage, his uh, you know, his dad, my dad, some advice and say, look, all the Dutch guys are in the one, all these Dutch kids, the, the, the local lads are not getting a chance. You know, it might be best to move on. Um, you know, so that's whenever I actually went from St. Andrews to sign for Lisbon Youth uh, because the Lisbon League was much better than the South Belfast League that we were in at the time. And that was 15. I needed to really push on. Um, and then it was Portsmouth Scout, the first game. He says, do you want to go over? And my dad asked me, and I just, for whatever reason, I said yes. Uh, I, I said no to Arsenal and Newcastle and Man United and things. And then Portsmouth asked me, and I'm like, okay, let's go. But it was all, it was just all timing. It could have been any team at that stage. And because Rangers were going through the transition, Ram McCann's dad sort of gave my dad some advice saying, look, it might be best if he goes to another team because he's going to go there and there are a bunch of Dutch kids in. And he's not going to get a look in um, because what I'm hearing, these Dutch kids are another level. Um, and that's when it came, I ended up going to Port instead of Rangers. Uh, but yeah, you don't really look at it, make or break years. Um, I remember Phil, Philip Mitchell was a, the Linfield scout and he called me and he says, look, I want to sign you for Linfield. You know, and I never really had it in me to, I wanted to go abroad or across the water, basically. And I always wanted to play for Linfield, but I always at that age I'm like, hey, I want to go over and play in Premier League or Scottish Premier League, and then come home and finish, finish my career at Linfield. That's a lot of my friends would even thought like that. Um, but again, you, you don't realise the make or break uh, at that age. You don't even think about it. Um, you just play, and hopefully you get a chance somewhere. But I think it's it's a lot different then. It was a lot different then than it is now. You know. Um, there's a, a better structure in place. You know, you've got the, the academies there, the Linfield Academies and, you know, Lauren Academy now. Um, and it's growing, which is excellent. Uh, so now there's a, there's a better structure. There's a better understanding of whenever to, you know, to basically to take care of the players. Um, because I, I remember going over to Portsmouth on a plane, landed there, straight into pre-season. You're doing double sessions every day. You're knackered. And then... Uh, the guy's like, okay, you have to go and set up a bank account. And you're like, you've never had to have a bank account before. You've never had to make your lunch before, you know, on a Sunday, the day after a game. So all that was new. Um, so, yeah, it was just simple things like that and managing money as well when you're 16. You know, but again, it's, I didn't really look at it as make or break. Um, until I guess maybe 26, 27 when you're sort of halfway through your career and you're like 
you start to look back slightly and, and that's when you realise, well, it's, you do need a lot of luck in this game. Um, and it's all about timing as well. Because, um, yeah, like my career could have been completely different to what it is now in timing. I was to, I was to play the last two Premier League games for Portsmouth against Wigan and West Brom. And uh, the, day bef- the day before the game, one of the first-teamers hit me a tackle and twisted my ankle. I was not, I wasn't able to play it, and I was actually, I was flying at the time, so that would have put me in the shot window, you know, playing in the Premier League, making your debut, um, playing two games, and you know, if you have two excellent games, you're in the shot window, and you're like, oh, you're a big prospect. But the timing was that I get injured the day before, and I didn't get that opportunity, and then a year later, I was actually flying then, and a year later, I found myself back in the Irish League playing. So in terms of make or break, you do understand whenever you're 19 or 20, but whenever you're 15, 16, you don't really look at it. It's incredible, just the, the small margins, which can completely change the direction of a career. And things have worked out really well for you, it has to be said, Daryl. But um, that time when you think you're getting into the Portsmouth team, you're going to get a bit of a chance and the injury comes, you must have been devastated. Yeah, um, I was because... I was, I was flying at the time, you know, I was fit, I was sharp, I was scoring goals for the reserves. Um, you know, I, I was just, just doing really well and manager at the time was Alan Perrin, he was a French guy. You know, so the first team, they stayed up, they were safe and there was two games left. And he phoned the reserve manager and said, look, Sammy over your best player, he's going to play tomorrow. And I, I get sent over. Um, like I just done my warm up and then sent over and straight into a game of possession. And then 15 minutes later, I just done my ankle. But the manager says to me, look, what position do you play? He didn't even know what position I played because he, he, didn't know, he didn't know what player was being sent over, even though he was aware of the reserves and all that. Um, and I says, oh, I can play centre midfield or like an attacking midfield. He says, okay, you're, uh, you're playing like as a number 10, you would say now. Basically, back then, you would have said playing in the hole. Yeah. And I was, oh, brilliant. And then 15 minutes later, ankle done. He phoned the reserve manager, Sammy over your next player. So sent over James Keane. He was our he was our number nine striker. He plays the last two games of the season, does quite well. Um, and then all of a sudden he goes on loan to a team in Sweden, plays a couple of games for them, and does quite well as well because their season had just started and he's he's coming to the end, but he was really fit. And Elsborg and Sweden, they were the top team. They buy they buy uh, buy him off Portsmouth. I think it was three hundred and fifty thousand euro, um, and it just so happened that the time he signed, Linfield drew Elsborg in the sorry a year later. Linfield drew Elsborg, and I had signed for Glen Torn, so I was in Belfast. So I met him in Castle Court, and <laughs> he said, "I says, what, what was the deal that you got?" And he just said, "Yeah, it was three hundred and fifty thousand signing on fee." And I'm like, that's what you got? He says, yeah, after tax. <laughs> so oh, I'm like, wow. so that's just, in terms of, obviously in terms of wages and stuff. But he was like, as soon as I got there, there was 350,000 euro in my bank account. That was the first day he got there. You know, so that's obviously, it'd be a lot more now because it's money's sky high. But in terms of, he, he played in Sweden for years. He played in, South Africa, he was back on loan at Portsmouth whenever they were in League One and stuff, you know, but 
that's a fine margins. If you get your little break in the first team, um, it can make all the difference. And sometimes you don't get it. Uh, my instance was because I got a bad injury. Um, you know, because I was, was with uh, was with Northern Ireland in the 19s at the time and was scoring goals for them. I scored four against Serbia, scored against Belgium. You know, so I was actually, I was in a great form. And that's whenever I just got a, a little bit of bad luck. Um, and that's what they say. You just need a, the rub of the green sometimes. It happens to so many players. And that's why a lot of players are like, I can't understand how this guy never made it because he was brilliant. But it, it could be, he maybe he got a little bad, bit of bad luck or he might have had a bad attitude. Um, you know, but again, it's, there's so many variables and, and things that can make our career yeah. And you, you look at it as well. So things, unfortunately, haven't worked out at Portsmouth. You'd be thinking with, you know, how well you've been doing before the injury, you'd get another chance in England. And you had some trials, didn't you? Were you with uh, Stoke, Tony Pulis? Yeah, um, I went up to Stoke. It was actually, uh, from that injury, the next year was like, I couldn't, everything just went bad for me, basically. I went up to Stoke, um, and I remember the, the boots were away. The second time this happened, it was the player reserve game. When I, was go- when I went along to Bournemouth, it was the player reserve game, and my boots were in the, in the bag. So I couldn't get my boots to go to Bournemouth. I had to go that day. My boots were away to, up to Villa Park. Um, and then the next time I says you're going up to Stoke Tony Poulos wants to look at you for a couple of weeks so my boots were away in the bag again and believe it or not I actually took Andy Cole's boots <laughs> Andy Cole was Portsmouth and he was the only same size as me I went into the boot room and he had a pair of Nike total 90s and I'm like I need to take these because he had about 10 pairs so I took a pair of his boots and I uh, went up to Stoke doing really well up there and you know, Stoke were chasing promotion. And Tony Poulos basically says to me, there was two games left, I think. He says, look, if we get promoted, I'm not going to sign you because I'm going to get £80 million or whatever it was to sign players. So if we stay in the championship, then I'll sign you because I'll be able to give you a run out. Um, you know, and Robert Garrett was at Stoke at the time. Uh, Robert was a year younger, so he had a year left in his contract. And then... Stoke got promoted, so then I couldn't, I, I couldn't sign. Tony Poulos were like, "There's no point because uh, I want you for the first team. I don't want you playing in the reserves all the year." And I was only twenty at the time, you know. So I was like, "Just sign me, and I'll play in the reserves, and hopefully you get relegated the following year." <laughs> then I went to, uh, I flew home, went on holiday, and then my agent called me and says, "Look." Uh, Luton Town want you over for a trial. Kevin Blackwell's a manager. So I flew over to Luton, done a week there. Um, they were going to Cyprus. The first team were going to Cyprus. And they, they took me to Cyprus. And on the way home, on the plane, Kevin Blackwell calls me up on the plane. And he says, Look, I'm going to give you a two-year contract. I think you've been fantastic. I was like, oh, brilliant. Uh, and then the next day, we, we actually had another pre-season game. And was, Don Hutchison was there. Mm-hmm. He was playing centre midfield with Don Hutchison. Um, and then after the game, the manager called me over and says, look, I can't sign you. The club's getting the administration. I'm leaving today. I want to wish you all the best. And then that was it. I was like, okay, can you can the club book me a flight? 
he says, no, everything's frozen. All the, all the assets and bank accounts all frozen. They can't do anything. That's wild. Um, and it was actually the week before that uh, Dario O'Grady wanted me up at Crew, And he says, look, Luke want me to go to Cyprus with him. And he says, well, come up here and I'll sign you. So I took a chance going to Luton because I was, I, was at, I was flying. I was probably one of the best players in training and in the games, games that we played. So I was quite confident that I was going to get a contract. And then the club goes in the administration. I phoned Dario Grady and I'm like, look, this is what's happened. He says, sorry, I've just signed someone. I can't, I've no spaces left. And then I was like, right, what do I do now? Like the season's supposed to start in two weeks' time. Um, and I was stuck. So I flew back home and my agent was trying to get stuff in England and nothing was coming up because everyone's filled up their, their squads. Uh, and then that's whenever it was uh, Tommy Wright was Balamina manager, gave me a call. Jerry Flynn was a Newry manager, gave me a call. Ronnie McFall poured it down. And then Alan McDonald at Glen Torn. Alan just took over Glen Torn and he was my under 21's assistant. And obviously me coming from Sandy Road being a Linfrey man. <laughs> I, said, I, can't, I can't sing for Glen Torn. And he was like, why not? It's only, it's only a game of football. And I said, you don't understand. Like, I'll not be able to live in Sandy Road. And I, obviously, if you know Alan, he's just a complete gentleman. Um, he was like, no, no, you'll be fine and all this. Um, so I sp- I've done a, I spoke to a few people. And I remember speaking to Aaron Callahan, played right back for Ballymena. And I, I, I says to Aaron, what do you reckon? He says, well, you can go to Portadown and you can get under the table. Go to Newry and they'll give you a few few cash under the table. You go to Ballymena and we'll do it right, you know, um, and there's great facilities. Or you can go to Glen Torn and challenge for trophies. You know, and I was like, why did Linfield not want me? But Linfield had Peter Thompson, Glenn Ferguson, Macarigui. <laughs> Galt, McGrew, that, that's like all the besides I had and then they were like they were dominating everything. So I actually went up to I went up to train with Balamina, went and trained with Portadown, went and trained with Glen Thorne and like I realised that Glen Thorne they had the better players, the better standard. Um in terms of on the pitch, you know, Balamina were fantastic as well in terms of uh, how they ran things. But I went home to my dad, he's a big Linfrey man, and says, look, what do you think? And he just says, look, the whole reason you play football is to win trophies. That's, that's what you do it for. Um, so he says, I don't mind. He says, if you sign for Glen Torn, I'll sit me away end at the Oval. And he did. <laughs> uh, I love that. That's commitment. <laughs> and I ended up signing for Glen Torn. And I remember Chris Holt worked for the Belfast Telegraph and he covered, he was a, I think he's a glam man, he covered a lot of it. And Big glam back, man. Yeah, and the back page of the Belfast Telegraph was Sandy Rowe Blue Man signs for Glen Torn. So <laughs> right there and then Chris threw me under the bus and I was playing catch up with not just a fan, but the, some of the players, diehard players, Colin Nixon, Paul Lehman, you know, Jason Hill, Glenn Thorndaya, even the coach Scott Young, uh, can catch up right away. 
But again, for me, uh, I'm not the t- people that know me. I honestly don't care about what religion you are, what color you are, what your opinions are. You know, we can have a little debate about things and you have your, your say, we have our say, but let's work together to make things better. Uh, I've always been like that. Um, you know, and it, it didn't mean that whenever I went to Glen Torn, I'm not going to give 100% against Linfield because it did, and I scored goals against Linfield. Um, and it just, I, I just wanted to win trophies. And I did with Glen Torn. The players welcomed me. I had to fight my way into the, you know, fight my way into the team. I had to do well. Um, and we did, and we had a fantastic team. With Gary Hamilton, Holiday up front. We fantastic back four, Sean Ward, Paul Eman, Jason Hill, Colin Nixon. Um, Philip Simpson was back up as well. In a, a brilliant midfield. Uh, and we lost, we lost by three points the first year. Linfield won it. And in the second year, we ended up winning the league. Um, I think it was the second year, third year. The second year it was. Um, yeah, second year. But yeah, and then uh, Alan left. Scotty took over and we didn't do well that year. And um, I ended up going to Linfield. But by that stage... There was space at Linfield. Glenn, Glenn Ferguson retired. Um, Macarivi retired. You know, so there was, and plus I was doing well at Glen Torn. You know, but again, it was. Uh, people are like, "Oh, that's a tough move to make," and and it's not if you don't have, if you have the view of, you know, everyone can work together at some point. Um, being because growing up in a divided city. You know, had Protestants and Catholics, and then you go to England. You went to England, and people call me Paddy or Irish, and I'm like, no, no, I'm British, and that's the few. But they didn't care because you were you were from Northern Ireland. You were Irish. It didn't matter. So it was yeah. like there's no point in me fighting this. And I went over with Mark Wilson. Uh, Mark Wilson ended up playing for Republic of Ireland, and he's from Akagallan, uh, down in Lurgan. Um, and the two of us became good friends there and, you know, we'd watch a Rangers and Celtic games. I'd wear my Rangers shirt and he'd wear a Celtic shirt. And, but then you just realise that at the end of the day, the most important thing is family and friends. You know, why would you, why would you sacrifice family and friends over someone else's agenda, so to speak, unless you're really die hard into it? Um, you know, you can, you can look at America over the last few months you see the diehard people with, with Donald Trump and they've been, they've been fed conspiracies and lies and, and they take it to another, another level, you know, and, and all these people have, some of them have great jobs and they're getting fired and the families and then all of a sudden their life spirals out of control. But that's, that's looking at it deeply. But uh, in terms of football back home, you know, I love my time at Glen Torn under Al McDonald. Uh, Alan was fantastic with me, and and he really he really got me settled again. Um, coming back from England, because um, uh, he said to me now, he says, "Look, I've played in England and I've, I've took a couple of games here, but don't think it's easy here because you don't get that much time on the ball, and you didn't." Uh, I remember thinking, "No, first training session is going to be easy." I couldn't get the ball off Gary Hamilton. I thought, oh, "I'm just going to take it off him." I couldn't get it off him. And then I realised that hey, the standards are a little bit better here. Um, and then, yeah, we won the Anton Shields, we won the League Cup, 
the league got to the final of Sintata Cup um, against Cork. Um, but yeah, it was a, for me, it was a very enjoyable time at the end one. Um, even though it didn't end on the, it didn't end it well by going to Linfield. But again, that was my decision. I always wanted to play for Linfield as a kid, and it was a boy who dreamed. Um, it was a choice between signing for Linfield or Glentorn. It was a no-brainer for me. Um, but I did give 100% to Glentorn. Um, I always did, and I always have for every team that I've played for, regardless of, of who it is. Do you think the Satanta Cup or something like that would be valuable to bring back maybe for the Irish League teams? You know, you, you look back to those finals and uh, Kyle Neal, what a free kick that was. You'll, you'll obviously claim the assist for the nice wee roll off oh. for him. <laughs> you didn't get assist back then, but if you started counting assists, <laughs> I think Kyle scored about seven free kicks like that that year, so I would have got seven assists on top. Um, <laughs> all I did was roll it with a sole of my foot and he hit it with the hammer of his left foot. But uh, yeah, we... We were unlucky and unfortunate we had to go down there and play them mm-hmm. in Cork, the furthest place away for us. But the, the southern teams were always stronger than us. You know, we we had uh, some Pats in our group and like they were fantastic. And we drew 3-3 away. But we were actually 3-1 up. And Elliot Marsh, one of our players, goes down. One of their players went down injured. And Elliot throws it out you know, to get him treatment. But they never threw back to us. They took a long throw into the box and scored from it. 3-2, and then we were complaining. Ended up 3-3. Mm-hmm. And then when we got them at the Oval, we beat them 1-0. I scored after six minutes, I think. Um, and we beat them 1-0. So that was actually, that was very deserved for us. I was looking and at that because you, you had that group format as well. And obviously, Linfield were in your group. And it oh, was... The late Mark Farron scored a hat-trick against Linfield in the night that, that you got the goal um, and, and those two events combining got you through. Yeah. Um, you know, and St. Pat's had Keith Fahey playing for them in midfield. Mm-hmm. I actually done... I was on the, the UFA licence with Keith. I was paired up with him and uh, he obviously didn't remember me, but he ended up going to Birmingham and stuff after and, you know, Keith was class. Um, I think they had Joseph Endo was mm-hmm. there and, He's probably, I was at Sligo and they were like, he's the best player ever for Sligo. Um, and you watch some of the videos and stuff. But we were not expected to beat St. Pat's. We were expected to get battered by St. Pat's. Um, but again, we had good players and Alan was an excellent coach and he set us up well. So when we, we went down there and we should actually, actually score down there as well. But we should actually beat them only for the last few minutes. They had a bit of gamesmanship and then we beat them at the Oval but again we had Linfield uh, well, Derry St. Pat's and then the other groups the Cork even the semi-final we played uh, I think it was Drogheda was it? Yeah Drogheda yeah uh, JC Hill scores after four minutes it was like a little scuffy goal <laughs> they, they all count <laughs> uh, they all count we couldn't get over half the rest of the game they missed a penalty and the final whistle went. I remember Gary Hamilton. He he ended up going the left wing. He was playing left wing back because we were one 0 up. We went with four. He, he actually made the call. He looked over at Big Mac and says, "Gaffer, I'm, I'm going to go four five one. We'll defend the whole game," and we did. And Kevin Keegan played for them. And he missed a penalty. Um, after the game, I just remember like we celebrated. But I'm I'm always one that sort of looks outside the box type guy. 
And I looked around me and all our boys are, some of them are on the ground. And I remember just standing beside Kevin Keegan. And he looked at me and said, how on earth have you just won that game? <laughs> and I just looked at him and said, I don't care, mate. We're going to the final. And then all of a sudden, all the Glen Torn fans stormed the pitch. And, but again, for me, Drogheda were, they were a much better team than Cork. You know, we, we had a chance against Cork. If we played Drogheda again, they would have battered us every single game. Um, but uh, actually, I think Cork, I'm not sure if Kevin Doyle or Shane Long or someone like that was playing for them. Um, or I can't remember, but uh, we'd have to, if there's any videos, we'd have to look back on them. But yeah, we, again, we had a good team. We challenged Linfield every single year um, until the financial problems came in at Glentorn. Um, and then even whenever I went to Linfield, like Big Dave used to come in with uh, two medals. He had two medals hanging on a suit. So when he wore a suit, he had his medals out, you knew he, he's in a serious mood today. And he said to me, this is one of the medals. You have the gold one of it. And I didn't have a clue. He says, that one hurts me the most. The, the year we won the league with Glen Torn. Because you know Big Davey, he's just a pure, pure bred winner. Winner through and through. I, and I experienced it when I went there. And, um, but yeah, it, it, it was a great time there. And I think this Santana Cup, if you could bring something like that back, because even playing for Sligo, I would have loved to have played. We played, Cliftonville came down for a pre-season game. Um, you know, and I was like, this would be great to, to play in another tournament. Um, just a challenge in North against the South again. Because um, the South were always better then, but now it's a lot different. You know, the obviously Dundalk and Shamrock Rovers are... are far apart in my opinion to any any team in Southern Ireland and Northern Ireland mm-hmm. um, just by playing against them and even you've seen Dundalk playing Linfield uh, I think it was last year and Dundalk just destroyed them on the counter-attack um, but yeah it's Linfield's going full-time Crusaders are full-time Larner full-time and you can see the standard you watch the games on the BBC website you can see the standard in games just going up a level from like from what I played in 10 years ago. Um, and I, I, I wish we, like back then it was a 4-4-2, get it wide, put it in the channel, cross it into the box. You know, uh, at Glen Torn, we had to get at the Hamilton's feet. He, he had a, done a bit of magic, got it wide. Kyle Nealon, he had whipped it in the Holiday's head or even in the me running late. Linfield were the same. Get at the Spike's feet. He gets it wide and then they throw it into the box for him and Thompson. And that's the way the game is played. Yeah. But I remember sitting on the, it was on the bench one game at Linfield and me and Robert Garrett, and you know Robert Garrett's a ball player. Yeah. And I was like, this would be brilliant if we were allowed one of the mid- midfielders to split the two centre-backs, drop in, you know, and then have the striker come short and the winger popping inside. You know, I used to see the game like that 10 years ago. And then now you watch... You know, you watch Linfield now and you watch Lauren now and, and they're doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very more tactical. Um, but again, it's what, what it does, it sort of, it separates the intelligent players to the, like back then, you know, we had in the league, there was a lot of average players. Mm-hmm. If you bring them, if they had to go to England, like they wouldn't have, they would have just been a fish out of water. 
Um, but whenever they're in the Irish League and they were able to hit these tackles and get tight and win their headers, like they were seen as good players. But now with the league, the, the way the league's starting to change, like I watched Linfield against Lauren a few weeks ago and it was very, very tactical. Um, and now you can look at it and, and see it's, it's improving. So a lot of what will happen is a lot of players now will have to get a lot more intelligent to keep up with the play. Um, and then once they go to England, they have to step it up a level. Because you know, we have, there's some guys that are they're on loan, back on loan from a couple of clubs in the league. You know, and you, you wonder why they're not, they not playing in the first team over there at the minute. Yeah. Uh, you know, so a lot of times it could be they're missing home and things. Um, but that's where you have to be a lot more independent as well. And not just coaching the kids at a young level, you got to coach them to be independent as well. Got to coach them to take things into their own hands and don't rely on other people um, to do it for them. You know, and, and then just get them into the process to improve themselves each and every single day without them turning up the training and expecting the coach to put something on to make them better. Like, that's, that, that's a gimme. But outside of that, as an individual, what are you doing outside of that? And for me, to go to England or even go to Scotland, uh, you can take your game to another level as long as you put the work in and the perfect example would be Sturdy Dallas. Yeah. You know, how how good has Sturdy got over the last five, six years? Like we've watched him for Northern Ireland. Like we all we always knew Sturdy's brilliant. You know, and he started off at Cook United, went to Glen Adam Crusaders, goes over. But then you look at him in the Premier League now, and like he's probably the, the best versatile player in the league. There's no one better on him in, in terms of versatile first however you say that word <laughs> versatility <laughs> versatility yeah um, and he can play anywhere and that's that's where I'm trying to get at is he's obviously got a fantastic coach in Bielsa but knowing Stuarty personally he, he improves himself and he's humble you know and and he, he settled down with his family and he's got a great family and things where when he finishes training he goes home to family he's not worrying about you know is he going out tonight um, or whatever it is? And Sturdy's probably done that since he was 20 years of age. And look at the rewards he's getting now. Um, because you see championship players going up into the Premier League and there will be a few Leeds players there thinking oh, they're, they can handle it and some of them might not. But Sturdy even this year has actually gone on another level for Leeds and whenever he plays a game he's Starts at left back, he's playing right wing, and he's playing centre midfield, and he's back at right back. You know, Bielsa can just throw him anywhere. And that's where he's um Sturdy's always been very independent himself, um, humble, and just gets on with things. Doesn't he he he, he on the task at hand and and he, he's improved every single year in his career. Um, you know, so whenever you get players like that. If, if Northern Ireland, if we can produce a lot more players like that, like we'll have a, a f- even better uh, senior team in 10 years' time, like without doubt, because I even see kids like Charlie Allen, mm-hmm. who's at Leeds as well, I've seen some of his highlights at their under-23s there. Uh, 
There's a couple of kids at Rangers. Um, we've got Ethan Gilbreth at uh, Man United. You know, so if, if there, there's a lot of quality players, and if you can get them a lot more, as long as they keep improving year in year out, you know, and all of a sudden the senior team will end up in a World Cup and actually actually go a little bit far as they used to years ago. It's funny because you know the way they say, "Oh, if we had eleven of him or whatever," and there's a, there's old chance you know dream of a team of a, whatever. Stuart Dallas is probably the only player that really applies to because he can literally do anything. <laughs> uh, and it just shows you that, as I'm saying, with the the way the Irish league has gone, and you know a lot of people give the Irish FA a little bit of stick, but I've went through my coaching badges with the Irish FA and and. The, the coach education that they have put in place and they're still, you know, I speak with Andy Waterworth um, here and there and he, he works in the thick of it. Mm-hmm. And what they're implementing there is it's doing so much for the Irish League because now there's proper structures in place and we've got players that are starting to play the way the Europeans play. You know, you, you watch the Charlie Allens and the Ethan Gilbreths at that age and they're starting to play how like a chavy type player we play, and and you're starting to get up with the intelligence, um, you know. So it's it's remarkable over the last ten years, so to speak, from whenever I was there to you know how it is now. Obviously, there's still a long way to go, and the game will still evolve. But you know, if 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 we could produce eleven sturdy Dallas's on the pitch, you know, it's or eleven. Johnny Evans on the pitch in terms of intelligence. Um, and that's where, as a senior team and, and the whole country, we want to get to, where we have 15, 16, 17 players all in the Premier League playing week in, week out. And then that's whenever you know the senior team's like, okay, all this hard work, it's, it's been excellent. Because over the years, it's always been a couple here and there in the Premier League, some in the Championship, some in Scotland. League one, league two, and you know it's it's been diversified. And obviously, the goal is to get fifteen, sixteen, seventeen proper senior players in the Premier League playing for the Leicesters, the Leeds, the Chelseas, and can it be done? No problem, because as a country, we've produced one of the greatest players ever, in George Best. You know, so it's the the football DNA is in our blood there. You've named some amazing Irish League forwards just in passing and they've been teammates of yours as well. There's always that debate about who's the best of all time. Do you have an opinion on that? In the Irish League? Yeah. Uh, it's Glenn Ferguson, without a doubt. Um, you know, I never played with Glenn. He was my favourite player as whenever I was a kid. Um, like He was my favourite Linford, Linford player. Um you know, big spike. I remember we played a, it was a, the second Boxing Day game. Um, I think he, he might have been about 38 at the time. The first Boxing Day game was at the Oval. We won 1-0. First time Glenn Horn beat Linfield, I think in 18 years or something on Boxing Day. Make a holiday scored. A uh, year later, you know, we went to Windsor and they beat us, I think it was 3-0. Um, spike scored two. You know, but like we have Colin Nixon and Paul Eamon back there and two unbelievable defenders. I think Colin might have played. Colin actually played centre-back, I think, that night and we put Sean Moore to right-back just because of Spike. And 
with all due respect, Colin and Leeper just, Spike was too much for them mm-hmm. on that night in particular. And obviously Spike done it over the years. And I'm sure Paul Eman and Colin would say the same uh, about Spike. But, you know, he, the Linfield players, they would just look up and, and hit it in the Spike. Didn't matter what way they hit it. It didn't have to be a good ball. Spike had the strength to hold off the technique and the touch to kill the ball. And then all of a sudden Linfield were... You know, they're ready to put the ball into the box or it's around the edge of the box for a shot. But without doubt, Glenn Ferguson, um, you know, it was only, I think he was, he was 38 at the time. And I remember playing on that pitch. Uh, Dee Curran actually scored a smashing goal for Glenfield. Um, but actually seeing him at 38, I'm like, wow, imagine seeing him 10 years ago playing against him. Um, but yeah, I would, I would have to go without doubt, Glenn Ferguson and... For me, second would be Gary Hamilton, because um, Gary had a little bit, a little bit more magic, a little bit more skill than Spike. But Spike was just a, he was just a force, you know. Um, and I, I played with Gary every single day in training, and seeing the stuff that he could do, and like, Gary could just turn up one day, and if he wanted to score a hat trick, he could score a hat trick, um, you know. But the way Spike was, um, Spike was just too too forceful uh, for anybody in the league. Yeah, it, it would it would have to take, I guess, two Winky Murphys. <laughs> to handle them. That's um, a scary thought, isn't it? Two Winky Murphys. <laughs> yeah, it actually would take two Winkies to handle handle Spike, and that's how that's how much powerful spike was and not just that the, the ball's in the air cross into the box and it's coming onto his head you know where it's going to end up it's ending up in the back of the net um, yeah. you know because I remember my dad actually told me he went up to New Force Lane to watch Northern Ireland senior team train and Glenn Ferguson was called into the senior team and I was only a kid at the time and he came home and said uh, I went up and watched the senior team and I just so impressed by Glenn Ferguson, he says, we're doing a cross and finishing session. Every header, like a bullet into the back of the net. And then he says even some of the, the defenders couldn't handle him that much. You know, and had Spike, I, I guess he had off, offers to play across the water and maybe it was due to family reasons or something that he didn't go across. I'm not so sure, but a oh, phenomenal player. And now just a fool. I don't know what he would be worth now. Like, I, if, if he was playing in the Irish League now, um, be a bit so, more. <laughs> um, it, it'd be unbelievable if, if he's in the Irish League now because even it's a lot more technical, but uh, he was technical and he, in terms of, like, if they wanted to play off the striker now, it's oh, just a fantastic player, you know. I never played with him, but playing against him, I could just see what he'd done to. Colin Nixon and Paul Eman that night, and and they were our two leaders, you know. And it was it was actually it was scary to see that. But with all due respect to Leeper and Nicky, you know, three days after training, they were like, "We take full onus on that, but we push on." And we did. We pushed on and won the league that year. Um, and with those two leaders, and that's where I sort of there I started to learn a lot more about resiliency. You know, even though you might get 
um, you know, get embarrassed a few times when you're playing or you're up against an opponent and um, as we say back home, you get your ass felt <laughs> on the pitch. <laughs> take the piss out of you. Um, not to let that hamper your future performances. And that's where I would learn from Nicky and Leeper. You know, it didn't matter if you get beat 10-0 or 1-10-0. You took it into your next game and, and, you, and you applied the same principles. So, you know, playing with guys like that and against players like that, you know, you, you can learn a lot. And they are generals as well. Uh, you know, as a young player, being able to be in the same changing room, out in the same pitches as people like Nicky and Leeper, um, you, you couldn't wish for any better, could you? Yeah. Um, and it was only four years, five years before that I was up. I was a season ticket holder at Linfield and shouting abuse to them. Um, <laughs> and Chris Walker would have played as well there at the time. And Holiday played. I know Holiday scored a couple of goals um, all the time. But you always remember the players and knew every, every player in the team. And then, you know, Scott Young, Pete Beatty, yeah, fancy became the, the head coach, the manager and assistant in the last year there. And so I, I, I spent a few years yelling abuse at them and supporting Winky and Spike. And, and then all of a sudden, I'm in the changing room with Leeper and Nicky and Halliday and then playing against Winky and Spike, you know, so uh, for me, it's, it was like, I even remember, because I, I was still friends with a lot of them, um, obviously coming from Sandy Rowan, the, the bars and stuff, we put on, like, you know, Linfield supporters clubs, we would have put on, like, player of the years and stuff, so, like, I knew, I knew Winky, um, and even after some games, you know, coming in from Windsor, uh, I remember coming up the tunnel at Windsor then getting in the corridor and Linfield had just beat us and Winky was out at the time and Winky's oh, giving a bit of banter to some of our players like shove it up them and have that and he's on that come here and all this here stuff and and Leaper's giving it back to him you know just argy bargy type stuff and I was walking in and Winky's like alright Darrell mate how are you? <laughs> you know for me it was sort of a conflict of interest. Um, I was stuck in, stuck between a rock and a hard place. And then I, I have to go back into the changing room and, and obviously Nicky and Leeper and Halliday would have heard Winky say that. And like, where is your allegiance lie? Where, where, like, where's your loyalty here? And I had to like basically tell the boys, look, this is nothing to do with my history or whatever. I'm here, I'm a Glen Thorne player. And I want to win trophies, regardless of who it is. And, um, you know, everyone has my respect, and hopefully, I uh, I have your respect as well. Um, and that's the way it was. And again, like in terms of Leaper, what a what a fantastic guy. You know, and actually, it was on with he was on when I was doing a license. He was there as well. Mm -hmm. I hadn't seen Leaper in years, and Leaper helped me so much. Um, just a fantastic, as you said, just a general, just a a, lead, a prop leader. Um, and just to learn from those guys at a young age was fantastic. And I still, from the till this day, I still think of some of the stuff that we done. Alan McDonald was very more um, a quiet leader, you know, and you knew he had your back, and he knew you knew that he had the best interests of you before anything. Um, 
because he knew that if if the players performed for him, then the team and the club were going to be fine. And then whenever you move across the Big Davy, it was different. It was you, you obviously knew Big Davy loved you and he protected the life out of every single one of his players and he still does a Balamina. But there was a there was more standards there and you weren't to drop your standard wasn't acceptable at Linfield. And that was probably the difference between the two clubs, um, from my experience, without being any disrespect to either or. Um, but there was a standard there. And if you let that standard drop, then like basically you weren't in the team or you wouldn't have been in the squad. Um, and people would have said it's because Linfield had such a big squad and quality players. But I'm pretty sure Big Davy would have done that and he would have played a younger player um, if you dropped your standards. And I guess that's why like, he's just a pure winner, Big Davy. But I'm trying to think that uh, Alan McDonald would have been like Carlo Angelotti, a right, quiet yeah. leader. Like he has a quiet leadership of Reddit. And Big Davy's like Alex Ferguson. That's, that's what the two of them are like. Um, Big Davy could have just yelled, shout out one name. He could have yelled your name and that spoke a full sentence of what happened the prior couple of minutes of the game when you're on the pitch. So Big Davy had that ability. Um, whereas Allen's was more quiet. Um, but with the two of them, you know, it was two different styles of leadership, but uh, like, unbelievable to play under two of them. And not just that, they had two assistant managers. They had assistant manager, Jordy Neal at Glenn Torn and Brian McLaughlin, who's still there. Like, they were unbelievable as well. Um, so it was a team It was a team thing. But again, whenever I'm 34 now, I look back on it now. And, like, I'm captain of the team I'm with now, Valor. One of the older boys, I think the, younger's, the youngest might be four years younger than me. Um, and now the younger boys are asking me for advice. And, you know, and I, I have to recollect what I learned from the Lehmans, the Winky Murphys, you know, these guys, um, and what I learned from them to put it, pass it on to the, the younger generation, the Canadian kids here, you know. Um, and you have to be a little bit more subtle nowadays. Well, I was going to say that, Darrell, because... <laughs> It must be some of the, the, I'm not looking at you directly with this, but you know, some of the language, some of the aggression, some of the, the ways that we would just consider normal in a, in a game of football, whether it was amateur league, whatever. I think if you take that out to Canada, they're probably thinking, what have I done to you? <laughs> That's exactly what it is. And it was actually my wife, I was speaking to her last week and she, she's a manager in one of her stores and she's the same. You know, you'll crack a joke. You know, we, we can we can talk shit about each other and it's a joke, but they take it literally. And it actually has got me in trouble a few times here. Um, it's got me in trouble with a previous owner um, here. And thankfully that the head coach that me and Albert had in, in Edmonton, he was from Scotland. So he yeah. understood, he understood it all. Uh, you know, you, you would do a joke on someone and they would think that you don't like them or, even on the pitch, they got, remember Albert? Albert's basically his, his saying. He used to say, hey, you, come on to F-U-C-K. 
Yeah. <laughs> whenever he said it, whenever he showed it to me, I'm like, I knew, like, I need to get it, need to get going here. Canadian players, they come in at half time and go to Albert. What's your problem with me? What have I done on you? And Albert scratching his head, like, and I'm scratching my head. This is so we had as a like Albert was the captain at Edmonton, and then I would have been the face. Um, and we had to basically spell it out for the players and get that banter, get that looseness within the boys. Um, and it was amazing that some of the boys, whenever they actually did come out of their shell and became a little bit more extroverted um, without worrying. Because here it's very, you have to be careful what you say. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's still, even to me now, it's still like that with the club. And thankfully, my coach here, he's from England. So he sort of, he understands the Northern Irish way and I can get away with a few things, you know, whenever I put it straight to people and let them know where I stand and you have to let me know where you stand and then move on. You know, but uh, like we had to put it to him and we had a big American goalkeeper, you know, and he was the best keeper in the league at Edmonton. And his dad was in the military. You know, if he says he'll pick you up at 12 o'clock, he was outside your house at 11.45. <laughs> if you came out at 11.46, thinking you're early, because you've seen him outside, he would say, you're late. And he, he was always 15 minutes early every time, no matter what it is. But he was very, very serious and angry, you know, big guy like. And then fancy me and Albert sort of, like we took him out for a few drinks and broke him down slightly and got him into the banter way and unbelievable. He understood he understood it how to like how to basically be free, so to speak. Yeah. The way we are back home. Cause the only way back home is you only know when someone has a problem with you is whenever they've already headbutted you or punched you. <laughs> you know, but before that it's you can say what you want to each other and they'll not really take it personal. Exactly. We we love a good slagging session, don't we, really? And our best yeah. mates, that's how we talk to each other. I even, going back to be, being out in Canada at my friend's wedding, and, and he lives out there now, and me and one of the boys from here were, you know, just giving each other a, a wee touch, and there were people ready to break us up, and I thought, we're, there's no fight here. <laughs> yeah. I remember when we first got here, and we had a for dinner with some of the staff members at the club, you know, and they were with their husbands and wives type dinner and me and Tina would have been speaking to each other or me and Albert and Alice and his wife and you know you could sense this this uh, sort of friction in the room and people the Canadians were looking at us and they thought that we were having an argument <laughs> and then we actually says no this is not an argument this is how we speak to each other so even to this day me and my wife like sometimes whenever I pick her up from work and go home, it's, we still have to try and talk. Even the other day, she's like, uh, you know, I think I'm being too nice to some of the people because, you know, she's like, okay, you have to, I'm putting you on truck. You got to go out the back and help lift the, the truck because she works in retail. She's a manager in one of our retail stores. And they're like, <laughs> she actually said the other day that uh, one of the girls said to her, like, do, do you not like me? Like, I'm on truck. I, I'm never on truck. And she's like, she's saying to me, I'm the manager, just go and do it. Yeah. You know, it's, not, it's not personal. 
and that's the way Canadians, that's the way they think. You know, it's not a, it's not a bad thing or it's not us against you type thing, but it's just the way they think. Um, and everyone has, everyone's a little bit different, you know. Uh, but the first thing I said, we had a leadership meeting last year at Valor and you had the manager and the leaders of the group. And the first thing I said was, guys, like this is this is competitive football. It's you know, it's it's a man, it's a man. Uh, we're in the men's professional league here, you know. So if someone says something to you, do not take it personal. Understand that if someone tells you to get your finger out and get a move on because you're not doing it, they're actually helping you because they have seen they have seen that you made a little mistake. Maybe you haven't seen it. But don't take it personal. It's just the way footballers talk to each other. Hey, get the finger out or tuck inside. Or um, if if, you, if someone lost their marker, you have a go at them for losing their marker. If the keeper doesn't come to take a cross, you let the keeper know, come and take it. You know, but don't take it personal. So that's the from the first year, uh, the first year I wasn't here, obviously, 2018, 2019, um, to last year. You know, speaking with the manager and the assistant and a couple of players that were, you know, it's been an improvement and hopefully we'll improve it this year as well in terms of the culture and understanding that, you know, if you don't get selected, don't be beating yourself up about it and feeling bad. If, if someone, like, if, if you're not scoring goals, if you're a striker and you're not scoring a couple of goals and you see an article saying why the striker is not scoring, don't be reading into it and thinking that you're a bad player. You know, just be humble and and as a team, we'll work together uh, and help each other through it. So that's what we're trying to build here. Um, and that's what we did build at Edmonton. Um, obviously, me and Albert would have been in the heart of it with a couple of other players and the manager as well. And it takes, it takes time to do. Um, and we have actually done it at Edmonton because... The third year we were there, they, they do projections, you know, who's going to win the league, who's going to finish bottom. Obviously, there's no promotion relegation. There was 12 teams and our projections were, we're going to finish 10th, 11th, maybe even last. That's where they were projecting Edmonton. But as the season went on, we finished third in the spring season, third in the, the fall season. Like there's two seasons and then third overall, we got to the semi-final, lost 1-0, last 10 minutes. And I remember we were sort of a punch bag for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, even the ball would go out for a throw-in, and it's for them. And a couple of our Canadian players would have picked the ball up and give it back to them. And we'd say, no, you pick that ball up and throw it five yards the other way, so they can't take a quick throw-in. Um, or, you know, you've got to take a foul for the team. You might have to take a booking. We're like, this is taking one for the team. Um, a tactical foul, it's known as now. So we, we were getting all that stuff into them. And um, even if you're up against an, an opponent, just winding them up, winding them up, saying something stupid about them. Me and Albert were at it all the time, you know, from corners. Remember we played the Whitecaps and they were expected to beat us. And obviously Albert's second name is Watson. And the Whitecaps have a centre-back. He's called Waston. And he, he doesn't even speak English. You know, so it's W-A-S-T-O-N on the back of his shirt. And I went, big man... Kipman's taking a piss out of you. 
he's not a clue what I was on about. And our boys and a couple of Whitecaps players are looking at me. I says, look, they've spelt his name wrong. And they're like, no, no, that's, that's how you say it. And I says, Albert, turn around. <laughs> Albert turns around. I says, that's, that's how you spell it. And they're like, no, no, it's Watson. I says, yeah, they've spelled it wrong, Watson. And this just couldn't really get the banter. Uh. So the, the, the big guys like, the big guys like, Albert says, what's this here? So Albert would like walk over and like give a little elbow into him to get a reaction out of him. And the big guy's like, hey, what's your problem? What's this and all? So we're, we were trying to get that in, into, the, into our players. You know, so you, you, look at, you look at fighters in terms of Conor McGregor, Mike Tyson, some of the, the best fighters in the world, and they, they could know they're going to have an opponent just by looking in his eye before the fight. And that's what we used to tell our players. You know, when you're in the tunnel, turn around. When you're lined up, turn around and look at him until he actually looks at you. And then stay there until he takes his eye off you. I'm like, that's you. You've, he, he, he's like, why is he looking at me like that for? And we got that through all our players. And we didn't, have, we didn't have the best players compared to other teams. You know, we would have played New York Cosmos and we wouldn't get the ball off them for 90 minutes. But that season, New York Cosmos, we'd like, they, they played free-flowing football. And that, as that season went on and we were... I don't, I don't even know if we lost at home that year. They started, when we got the ball, they would have dropped off and got their shape. And they never done that. So then we realized, like, me and Albert would get it to the players and say, look, that, that's them and showing us the respect that we deserve. As soon as we get the ball and they're dropping off, mm-hmm. that, that shows that they're, they're scared of us. You know, so take it to them. And as the season went on, we got stronger and stronger um, and made the playoffs which we weren't expected to do, you know, so I'm, I'm trying to sort of implement that here with Valor um, because, again, uh, I guess Forge are the strongest team, Calgary, Pacific, you know, they've been the dominant over the last two years, so to speak, and even last year, Halifax got improved, and we improved as well, but again, it's, it's, uh, it's getting to know them, but whenever it's a land the 11 on the pitch, you know, don't worry about what's going on outside the pitch. If you can look your man in the eye, you, you never know. Um, and even whenever I was at Sligo, I remember last year or two years ago, we played Shamrock Rovers. Um, Jack Byrne was playing Brilliant. for Shamrock Rovers. Brilliant best player. player. Best player in the league. Best player in the league. The, the first game we played them, we actually beat them 2-1. I scored a screamer. And he played and he, he was fantastic. And I didn't really know of him, but until I actually played against him, and I was like, he's, he's brilliant. And then the next game, the, uh, sorry, that game, their striker actually, it was 1-1, and their striker said, Jack, you better win us that game. But what he was doing, he was popping in behind me and Dave Colley in the midfield, and he was giving us problems, because we knew if he gets the ball in there, and he gets turned, like he's a genius on the ball. And he'll score, set it up. And we didn't want him to get the ball in there. So me being a little bit shrewd, I went, he doesn't want the ball to their striker while Jack, while Jack Byrne was there. And he was, the striker was like, what are you talking, like looked at me as if say, what are you talking about? I said, he's hiding in behind me. He keeps staying behind me and Collie. Yeah, I said, I heard he's the best player in the league, but he's hiding in behind me. So what does Jack Byrne do? Obviously Jack's still young. 
he starts coming in front of us. So Which me and you Colin's like, happy day. <laughs> uh, happy days. I can see him. <laughs> but uh, he ended up setting up a goal or setting up a move from there. Um, but it made us happy. It made us, we knew where he was and he wasn't, a, he wasn't as a threat. And in the next game, we played them away. They destroyed us, destroyed us. Then we played them at home. And the mate and his wife came down from Belfast to watch the game and came out. Of, they sat right up above the tunnel and he shouted down, Daryl, look who's beside me. And he's sitting beside Mick McCarthy. And Mick McCarthy's a Republic manager at the time. And he says, um, he's here to watch uh, Jack Byrne for Shamrock. My mate, he's from the Shankle. He doesn't care who's listening to him. So he's like, he's here to watch Jack Byrne. And Mick McCarthy's looking at him as if to say, what are you at? So, uh, shake the hands, game's kicked off. Um, about a minute in, I'm beside Jack Byrne and I says, how are you, Jack? Nice things. And he's like, all oh, good, buddy, all good. I says, you, you know Mick's here watching you tonight? Because um, he hadn't been calling the, the senior team yet. He's like, oh, I think it's the second game he's up watching. I says, you may play well. Don't be making any bad passes tonight. You know, or, <laughs> I says, Northern Ireland will be knocking on the door for you instead. I don't want that. And he was like, aye, oh, so his first ball, he passes it and the pitch is wet. And the ball, he hits it and the left back just doesn't, the left back should have been on his bike, but he wasn't. And the ball skidded out. I say, Jack, don't be doing that again. <laughs> and again, the next ball, he plays, plays a bad pass. I, was, I just looked, he actually looked at, he looked at me and I went, oh, big Mick's going to be leaving at half time. <laughs> and then he, uh, it was like halfway through the first half, games nil nil, not much happening. And Dave Colley took the ball off him, and I think he set up a goal or almost set up a goal. And I said, Jack, Big Mick will be leaving at half time. But see the rest of that game, for being the best player in the pitch, he was probably the most underperforming player on that night. Um, and after the game, I actually over and said, Jack, don't worry about it. You're the best player in the league. Um, and you get called into the senior team. But that's what I'm trying to bring into the Canadian boys here, that, you know, there's another side. Alex Ferguson used to do it, man games. Yeah. There's another side to it. As long as you're fair with it and not, not being like, harsh or anything on it. Um, because you know what the Irish League's like. Everyone talks crap to each other. <laughs> uh, and that's what I'm trying to get to our players here, um, individually as well, because... You know, we have a big centre back. He's a gentleman, quality on the ball, and you know if he looks at you, he's scurry, but he's a real, real gentleman. And I would say, I would say to him, just like look at them as if you're going to punch them. You're not just to rattle them slightly, because once you have the striker, he'll not want to go near you. Go to the other side, and then the other centre back get him to do the same, and then you've thrown him off his game slightly. You know, you, you've intimidated them. Um, and that's why, like, in terms of football, people don't really look at that side of the game. Because uh, Alex Ferguson was up to his eyeballs doing it. You know, he's, he's I guess, here with his watch, Fergie time, his interviews. Um, you know, Ali Gunnar Solskjaer complained about Chelsea the other week there, putting the Harry Maguire thing, sort of challenge on Aspilicueta that they put on their website before the game. And then... During the game, United never got a penalty. The handball on, you know, some people say it's handball, it's penalty. 
for me, it's a stupid rule. Yeah. Um, you know, shows her, he's like, oh, it's because they put it out. Shoshar played under Fergie. He knows all the tricks in the book. Mourinho's at it. You know, so I'm trying to tell the guys here, Canada don't really don't do that here. We've got a head start. If we, we can do this, they're not going to know. And for me, like, Albert was absolutely brilliant at it. Because um, we would have the Canadians, even a couple of the Jamaican boys, like one of the Jamaican boys used to think me and Albert were crazy. <laughs> like, you two are not right in the head. But it was just all, it was all an act, you know, just to get an upper hand on, on your opponent on the pitch. And then afterwards, it's like, you know what, we buy them a, buy them a beer. That's what they do in the Irish League. Kick a life out of each other and then you go for a beer afterwards. Um, I think they called you the Belfast brothers, didn't they? Uh, Albert was telling me a story about how you, you maybe helped your manager out in one game. Were you playing against Minnesota and they were, they were getting the better of you in the first half? And I think at Edmonton, it was a bit rigid in terms of the formation. You were playing against a 4-3-3 and... Was it either you or Albert said, let's turn this into a 4 2 3 1 and we'll get back into this game? Ever a wee bit of that going on? There's a lot of that going on. <laughs> uh, our managers, Colin Miller, like, like, we love them the bits. Um, very strong headed, you know, old school, 4 4 2. That's it. Um, you know, I guess Colin would maybe look back on it now and see how the games sort of evolved, where Tactics and formations and systems do matter to a point. Um, obviously, it's not the be-all, end-all. But it does matter because if you're playing centre midfield and it's three against two in there, and you say your coaches told your strikers to stay high and your wingers to stay wide and there's too much space, so the three in there is destroying the two of you. You know, you need help. You need to drop a striker in or you need to get your wingers tucked inside. Or you need your back four to push up to make it a little bit tighter, you know. But you gotta, you gotta sort of sacrifice one thing to help something else. Mm-hmm. And again, it's all about timing and and doing it, you know. So, like we play Minnesota, they were quality. Uh, they would have been probably one of the best teams in the league. And possession based, they would all 70 percent against us every time. And you know, I think it would have been one of the first games and. I was in the mid- midfield, and I just remember I hit one of their. I think I hit their captain a tackle, um, and it sort of fired up our manager slightly. He was like, "Yeah, let's get going here," and you know, because it wasn't like me to hit the hard tackles. It was always Albert, or we had another boy there, Richie Jones was at Man United. He was he would have went in hard, you know. Um, but if you see one of your, I guess I would have been one of the nicer players. You know, the, a technical type player. If you see one of those guys hitting a tackle, you know, it sort of it gives everyone a lift. Um, but again, I remember me and Albert, we, we ended up discussing it. And we said, look, we need to change this slightly. I, I think I was playing a striker and I said, I'll drop in the midfield. And we dropped in. We, I think we won the game. And that was the first time that sort of got the ball rolling. And a light bulb came on me and Albert's head to say, you know what? You see, when we're on the pitch as players, we have the power to change things slightly. You know, as long as it's not going against the manager. Because a 4-4-2, all it is is your wingers talking inside slightly and one of your strikers dropping in as number 10 to help out the midfield. Um, and 
from then on, we started to, especially at half time, we, sh- we would change slightly, you know, change tactics. How did you pass that on? Because obviously your manager's about as well and he's got, he just, no, four four two. that's all there is. So is it, is it like we nudges and, no, you're going to do this now or how does it work? Oh, just whenever we get back onto the pitch, ready to start the second half, you know, we call each other over. Um, you know, as if, you know, Celtic would go into a huddle and do their huddle, but we just called each other over to have a chat and it was there. And, and we had a, we sort of had our own type system. Uh, um, we would say to the goalkeeper, what do you see in front of you? What, what's what we're trying to do? And he would give the back, what he sees, he would give the back four, you know, some advice. Mm-hmm. And then, Albert, what do you see? And he would give the midfield and the fullbacks advice. And then we might have asked one of the fullbacks, Adam Eckersley came through at Man United. We, we signed him from Hearts, I think. We would ask him because he was very smart as well. And then he was given the wingers. And then I was in the midfield. The would he asked me, and then we would have went to the striker and we asked the striker, like, how can we help you? What, what do you need? And then from there, honestly, it only took a minute to, to get, get that across to each other. And then that's when we realized that, all right, a right back's getting 2v1. Okay. In that instance, our holding midfielder come you over and protect him slightly because we had a good right winger. We don't want him chasing all the way back. His strength was, you know, breaking forward as a counter-attack because he was quick and he had, he, had a, he had a good delivery as well. So um, sometimes we would have said, you track back, and then someone might have said, no, have the midfielder go across, let him stay out. But on the left side, the left midfielder, he was maybe a little bit fitter than the right midfielder, so we, we, were, we were able to say, just you track back in that instance. And then we would see it as it goes on, but, you know, obviously... You never go against the manager, but we were just putting a little stamp in the game in the second halves just to help ourselves out at times because we were always the underdogs against Minnesota, against Tampa, against Cosmos, Miami. Um, and, you know, we, we know that every coach doesn't know all the answers and don't, doesn't have all the solutions to everything. Um, so that's where we were like, okay, it wasn't to go against the coach, it was the how can we help ourselves and give ourselves a better chance on the pitch? Um, you know, without saying we can't just stick to a four four two or we can't just stick to a four five one, whatever it was we were set up that day. Uh, and as players, we actually started to get a little bit more experienced and better at it. You know, so it was actually the the money what we took from the manager, we sort of brought that onto the pitch, and our manager in terms of Defensive tactics, you know, he was fantastic. Uh, like enforced we had two goalkeepers to get the Golden Glove, the, the most clean sheets in the year. Um, you know, we had Albert in defence with another. Uh, the first year we had the Scottish guy, David Proctor, him and Albert, great relationship. And then um, Proctor went back to Scotland and we had a guy from Senegal who built up a good relationship with Albert. And we had a good goalkeeper, so... Uh, along with their fullback, so we were very solid there. The only piece missing was the the attacking side, um, and that's where I would have came into it because I I see the attacking side a lot better than the defensive side of the game, um, just to help out the players and myself as well because I would have been the top goal scorer most years, coming from midfield as well. Um, 
but we were. I, I would always think that okay, if our striker's not the top goal scorer, where else can we get goals from? I would look at myself, look at other players who can chip in with the goals. Um, just all different types of things. But yeah, I remember we done it, and the, the manager done an interview, and he was like, for whatever reason, we're always better in the second half. <laughs> uh, all the boys started laughing and stuff and he didn't know uh, but it wasn't it wasn't because uh, it wasn't work, well because it was just to help ourselves out that's all we used to do it um, I love that <laughs> yeah and then whenever at the end of the year I remember speaking with the manager in the meeting and I sort of says like as the players we sort of took it upon ourselves to do this type of stuff and I know you're aware of it and things, um, but what we done was it, we collaborated together. It was like, because our manager the first two years was very strong-headed. It's my way or the highway. You do as I say, you know, and obviously he's from Scotland and that's the way a lot of Scottish coaches are like, you know, they tell you to do something, you do it. Um, but then that's whenever, I guess, he realised and we realised even me as well, it's good to have collaboration between the players and the coaches because um, even in terms of business, I remember reading, I think it was Theo Pafitas, he was one of the Dragon's Den back in the day, and like he, he, he used to say, look, his secret is um, he goes to the actual stores and asks, asks the people that are working full-time there or doing the actual shift, like, what, what sort of problems are you, you having during the day? And he was like, it might be that they're using one till. They've only got one till and the lineup's out the door. So they were like, it's so stressful. We, we could do with another till. And he, he went to the ground floor. He would go to the ground floor in his businesses. He had maybe 500 stores. And that's how he ran his business. He was like, look, the employees, they're the ones that give you the answers. So in terms of football, um, it's good to ask the players because players don't go onto the pitch to play bad uh, and they might have bad games, but it could be because you have set up a player wrong um, or there's some sort of tactic that's not giving them... You know, it's, I'll take... I watch Man United. Um, I'll take Marcus Riceford for an example. And if you play Marcus Riceford on the right, he knows he's there just to do a shift. You know, you put him on the left and he comes to life. Mm-hmm. He loves coming inside on his right foot, and, and he, he he's a uh, you know he's playing on the front foot when he's on the left, whereas on the right it's just like a shift for him because he can't come inside and shoot with his left foot. So, in terms of uh, obviously, whenever I go into coaching, that's one of the things that I'll always do is ask the players individually, like, what are you finding difficult? What what do you think could help? And then sort of have a chat with each other and come up with a solution. Because um, Albert had to play left-sided centre-back um, at Edmonton because the, the, the guy from Senegal, he, he didn't like playing left-sided centre-back. And Albert's like, well, I don't like playing left-sided centre-back, but he's a captain, he's a leader, he has to take responsibility um, and sacrifice himself slightly, which he done. So then when he goes to left-sided centre-back and Obviously, a lot of teams target a right-footed setback that's playing on the left because they know once he brings that ball on his left foot, that's whenever they can trigger their press. Mm-hmm. 
And at that time, that, that, that press came in. You've seen Liverpool do it over the last few years. Phenomenal at it. Um, you know, if, say they were playing Man United and say Smalling was playing left side of centre back as soon as he took it. Salah went. Firmino went and they all, they all pressed because he's uncomfortable on his left foot. And Albert had that same problem. Um, but again, that's where obviously myself and Albert would talk and come up with solutions on how to do it and how to sort of deceive the opposition, knowing that they're going to do that. Um, and a couple of little things we would come up with is, you know, we would tell the left back, now as soon as, as, soon as goes the Albert, you need to drop 10 yards so Albert can give it to you. And that's pulled up their, that's made them give them their press. And it could be they've pressed high, the left backs came back. It's gave Albert a simple solution to pass to the left back. And sometimes the left back would go back to the goalie and then the goalie would hit the diagonal ball over to the right because their whole team's pressed. And as players, we came up with that ourselves, but it was to help Albert so he wouldn't get caught in possession of the ball because we knew teams were going to target him for being a right footer on the left. And Albert's not, Albert's not the greatest player on the ball. Albert's just an old school centre back. He's not bad on the ball, but he's not, he's not the guy to hit 60 yard diagonal balls is what some centre backs can do. So we had to come up with a solution that, okay, we don't want, once, once we pass the ball to Albert and we know they're going to press, we don't want Albert to be stuck on the ball. We want to be a step ahead. And that was one of the things the left back would drop, play it to him, go back to the goalie, Sometimes um, Albert would play to the left back. Teams knew that the left back's going to go back to the goalie. And it might be the guy that closes down Albert would, or the other striker would cut that off. Mm-hmm. So then I would say to Albert, would just step you into like a holding midfielder. And that, that would have been going against, I guess, what the manager's philosophy was because he, he wouldn't have wanted that. But that was a solution. So then we were like, okay, if the manager has a go at you, We'll get the holding midfielder to take away his man, and then I'll come under. So I would have, we played a four-one-four-one. Just back in the video because I'm obviously stuck coaching still, and seamlessly implemented ourselves. Um, but we started to come up with solutions ourselves, and all it was was finding a solution, and making sure everybody was on the same page in terms of how the opposition pressed. Um, so for us, as players, we sort of started to learn about the coaching side ourselves. And it made us respect the coach a lot more because mm-hmm. we knew what job at hand that he, ha- that he had on his hands. Um, that he has to come up with six million solutions in a game and it's just not possible to do um but we did we did work on it and we made the playoffs and and it made every single one of our players better as well could you imagine coming up against them at some stage because as you said you've gone through your coaching badges so has he could the could the pair of you one day be managing and opposing dugouts um opposing dugouts are the same dugouts not a problem uh you know, whenever it comes to that's that's why the two of us I think became really like really close in terms of you know friends and football side of things because I could bounce off stuff 
and learn from the defensive side and he bounced off stuff to learn from the attacking side. And then I would have learned from the defensive side of what they're trying to do, which made me a better attacker and he vice versa. Um, you know, but again with me, if I was, if someone was to say, hey, you're a head coach tomorrow, I'd be like, right, I need, I need a defensive coach and he'd be the first person to call. And I'd be like, Albert, all the defensive stuff, that, that's your that's your job. I honestly don't care. Um, <laughs> if we can see three goals, I'll just say, like, what's that, what's happening here? Short it out, and that's it. That's his department. That's the way I would look at it. Yeah, and I think he would. And he said the same thing to me as well in terms of the attacking side. You know, just leave it um, to do your basically do your role. Um, but yeah, like we never know. Like, the thing is in football you don't know where it's going to take you um, like even in the winter there uh, like I got offered two coaching roles in Canada and I'm, like me and my wife have moved so much uh, over the last few years we've got a son now and he's settled in his daycare um, I didn't really get to play much last year because of COVID it was only like seven games or so we played and I was injured for most of it uh, I was injured before, so I was basically fighting fit for the tournament that we played, and yeah. I was playing about sixty-five percent. So I wasn't myself, um, you know. So I was like, I still want to play. Um, I want to lift a trophy as a player, and hopefully my sons are uh, on the pitch as well. Uh, even if it's away, I'll flam flam out with my wife, and that's my goal. Um, but yeah, again, you. Football, I've had too many, went through too many experiences to know where it's going to take you. Because from an early age, I was at Rangers, and then all of a sudden, I've signed for Portsmouth, I'm in Portsmouth. And then, okay, I'm signing for Luton, and then the next day, I'm not. And I'm playing for Glen Torn. Never thought in my life I would have played, been playing for Glen Torn. And then I moved to Limfield, and never thought in my life I would have made the move. First of all, playing for Glen Torn, and then moving across because it's, it very rarely happened then. Like before me, I think the last one was Justin McBride from what I was told and I think that was maybe 10 years or 15 years prior to it. Um, I you think that's the floodgates? <laughs> I and then, you know, Sean Ward, Jimmy Gallagher, George Stewart, just opened them up. Uh, but yeah, the, then I ended up in Canada. Honestly, I didn't think I would have ended up in Canada. Uh, then I was down in America. Then I was back in Canada, and then I was playing for Sligo. <laughs> Honestly, that's just the way football it is. Um, I, had a, I had a call with one of our goalkeepers a few weeks ago. You know, he wasn't sure what was, what was happening with him. Um, he wasn't offered a new contract. Uh, nothing was coming up. Uh, he called me for advice, and I says, look, don't worry about it. Something always comes up. Make sure you stay fit. Make sure you're working hard. You know, um, keep a good attitude. Keep a positive mind frame. And he did. And he called me last week and he says, hey, I've got an offer in the Philippines. I says, there you go. He's like, it's a, it's a very good offer as well. I says, well, brilliant. Have a like, speak with your agent. And, and then he calls me the next day. And he's like, hey, uh, Valor's offered me a new contract. So within two days, he's got two offers on the table. I was speaking to him yesterday, he's still talking. I think he's going through uh, our offer now with the manager. Um, 
But, you know, I said to him, like, I told you something always comes up because I was in that position before I went to Sligo. Um, 2018, I was with Edmonton. The, sorry, we were with Edmonton and the NASL folded. So Edmonton were waiting to go to the CPL in 2019. So they weren't playing 2018. And my wife was pregnant. So I went home to start my coaching badges. And a couple of teams were interested. There was a couple in Scotland actually were interested, Ross County and stuff. So I was going to go over as like a trial type basis or they were going to put me through like fitness work just to make sure I was fit um, because they had good recommendations for me. But my wife, she couldn't fly. She had uh, some blood condition in her legs with the pregnancy. And so we were, were not able to leave uh, Canada until the baby was born. But then um, a lot of other stuff went on within Canada in the league and how they were signing players. Um, it didn't do me any favours. So we, we flew home because we had the baby. We wanted the family to see the baby as well. And then I was training with Linfield, training with Lauren. You know, I needed to stay fit. And Healy and Tiernan were letting me train. And Albert was up training with Lauren. He just came back from Iceland. You know, and, and Tiernan and Healy were asking me, like, what's my plan? Obviously, couldn't sign me until January, I guess. But I wasn't really, I wasn't really fit. I wasn't match fit compared to all the other players, you know. And um, and then my agent actually calls me and says, "Look, what about Sligo? Sligo are looking the midfielder Liam Buckley, the manager. He remembers you from your Glen Torn days because he was obviously coached in Pats and all that." And mm-hmm. I was like, "All oh, right," um, but I was thinking of going back to Canada to play. So they were sort of, it would have been March time I would have went there. Um, but then I was in my mum, we were staying in my mum and dad's house. And they were like, there's a game in Bala Mallard. I'm like, right, I'll jump my dad's car. You know, because I didn't have a car, I was using my dad's car. The game got called off because of the snow. Um, so it says, right, there's another game in Athlone. And I'm like, where's Athlone? I'm like, that's even further. <laughs> so I drove down I drove down on the Friday they put me up in the hotel they were actually tr- the train on the pitch on the Friday pitch was frozen so we had done a run in the forest um, that was my trial my first trial run, a run in the forest with Sligo we went down the afternoon they had AstroTurf pitch it was, half of it was frozen I think so I played well and after the game they, they made me an offer and it says my wife Give me an offer, and he said, "Well, are they going to provide a, a house or anything? Because obviously we were in the mom and dad's." And it says to the manager, "As long as you get as a get as a house or an apartment, you know, um, my wife is off maternity anyway um, from Canada." So they were like, "Yes, we can do it." And all of a sudden, I found myself down first game away to Dundalk. You know, um, hadn't played. I hadn't played a game, like a proper game, in 15 months. And we're playing away to Dundalk. And we got a 1-1 draw at Dundalk as well, you know. But as I say, you, you don't know where it's going to take you. I didn't think I would have ended up playing for Sligo. Um, and had an absolute fantastic time there. And then I come back to, and play, come back to Canada and with Valor. So as I said, in terms of coaching as well, 
if you become if I, if I do become a coach, you know, I want to become a coach, but football, you never know what's going to happen. Um, you don't know where that's going to take you as well because I could go in in it for a year and not like it and you know I might say you know what it's not really for me or I could go in and excel at it and love it which I think that this, the latter will, is my mindset at the minute you know I do love it I love helping players get better and all that um, so yeah and it could be I'd go in and do fantastic and get a lucky break and I was actually speaking to Albert the other day I says imagine me and you went into, went into coaching and ended up in LA coaching Will Ferrell's team. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, I says, the two of us just look at each other and say, what's going on here? <laughs> um, but again, I, I says to him, you it's never not know. impossible. Nothing, yeah, no, nothing's impossible. Good. Yeah. Um, you know, so you have to sort of look at it and, and be positive and, and work at it and get better at it. Um, but for me this year, it's like, same with Albert, you don't know if it's going to be your last year or not. Um, and I, I got offered a couple of coaching jobs there, but it wasn't the right time. With it wasn't the right time to hang the boots up with um, my family. My wife settled here in Winnipeg. My son's at daycare. Uh, but if if a good coaching job comes up and it, it suits me and my family, then I'll say that's me. Um, I'm done with playing I'm going to go into the coaching side of things but again you can't sort of you can't just pick and choose you have to wait, wait for the moment and be ready for it and for me the transition into coaching that's where I'm at at this stage but right now it's 100% on the pitch um, and try and give me all but you never know and, and that's the thing what the point I'm trying to get football is very unpredictable every game is unpredictable and then where you end up is unpredictable you know and it happens to the best coaches and it happens to the unfortunate coaches as well mm-hmm. and players as well you know so you can take Chelsea for example Thiago Silva's playing centre back he leaves PSG next minute the PSG manager becomes a Chelsea manager and he's sitting on the bench that's just the way it works yeah. uh, you know so it's it's to do with a lot of things, relationships, opinions. Everyone has their opinion in the game. Uh, and again, it's about timing as well. If someone likes you and thinks that you can do a job for them, um, and if it suits you and you're able to give 100%, then it's a good match. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's uh, a lot to digest, but for me, Right now, I'm just training every day and getting ready for the season coming up. And hopefully, we, we can possibly win something this year here. Uh, obviously, it's only the third year, but the, the league is growing. Um, I heard they're trying to start a second division as well here. Um, I'm not too sure the insides, the ins and outs of it. Um, but again, it's just... Focus on focusing on I've always done get better as a player, even though again I'm, I'm not going to be as good as I was five ten years ago, but I can still uh, as me and Albert we speak to each other. It's like look, as long as you're still valued to the team and you can churn out results, that's all that matters. Um, because when you're in the in the men's game, it's about winning. 
you know, in the in the, the youth development, it's about development. You know, you don't have to win at that age. But once you go into the men's game, it's like, right, you have to win. And if you don't win, you lose your job. Or if you don't perform well, you lose your job. It's like every other business in the world. If you don't do well and don't perform at your job, you end up losing it. Unless your dad owns a company or you own a company, and then you're good. Yeah, the percentages are uh, you'll lose. <laughs> you'll lose at some stage. But you've had a great career. You've so many winners' medals. And, you know, the double will infield, which we didn't even really talk about, but winning the, the league in the Irish Cup in the same season, a, a fantastic achievement. So much of what you said, I think, for young players listening will just be great learning points for them to try and understand that, like, no such thing as a career without adversity. So get that out of your head. There's no straight lines in this business, but it's about how you overcome them, how you bounce back and, and respond. And and you've done that time and time again. Edmonton's all-time record goal scorer. Uh, just had to get that in there. It's a nice thing to, to add to all those winners' medals too. Uh, you, you've done so well, and I've no doubt you'll be a very good coach, Darrow. Um, just before I let you go, for anybody thinking about, because you know what we're like in Northern Ireland, we're homebirds typically. So... Yeah. Being atypical and you've travelled about a bit, you know, for players here, should they be thinking instead of going Scotland or England, should they be thinking further afield, maybe? Yeah, why not? Um, for me, the first and foremost, like the quality, the the best quality level you can play at will be obviously in England, and the Tran aim for where Stephen Davis and the Dallases and the Johnny Adams have got to, that's that's obviously your ultimate aim. But not all of us can make it at that. Um, the likes of me, I almost made it at that. Um, but I just didn't quite make it at that. And, you know, and that's the thing is you have to just give 100% every time and you'll find your place. But that doesn't mean your place is secure. Um, you know, and again, it's whenever, if, if they move to America or move to Canada, it's a lifestyle change. It's not just... Uh, a game like we me and my wife moved here Albert obviously in 2013 as well moved for a lifestyle change mm-hmm. to start a family um, so the kids can grow up in a different place um, and have better opportunities because obviously I've lived in Canada you've been to Canada and see how things different how things work differently here um, and again they work differently in America but it's like it's what, what suits you, really, and what you're trying to find. But in terms of a player, um, like if anyone wants to, even anyone in the Irish League, and I've, I've obviously had players reach out to me and stuff, uh, hey, can, can you get me a move to your team or whatever? And It just doesn't work like that. Um, <laughs> the, first thing, the first thing that they have to do is if they want to move abroad is um, we don't tend to do it back home because it's seen as he's full of himself, you know, it's to make a highlight reel of all your best moments. And the younger kids are starting to do it now. But, you know, if, if we make a highlight reel and throw it on our, on our, like I'm talking five years ago on our Instagram, it's like he loves himself. Yeah. And who does he think he is? That, that's our mindset back home. But that's a thir- the f- very first thing that you need to do. You need to make a highlight reel of your goals, of, of your good passes, of your tackles, of your general play. And that is, the highlight reel is basically your, that's like sending a cover letter to an employer. 
for them is to look at your cover letter and go, you know what, it's worth looking at his resume um, and then possibly getting an interview. An interview is basically a trial and, and everyone does it in the business world as well. But that's the first thing that a player needs is basically a highlight reel. So the coaches can look at it and go, you know what, there's something about him. He's a good player. But now they need to verify something else, maybe a full game. Need to watch him live. Um, and then, and that's a thing. But, you know, it's not easy to move across the world. Um, it's certainly not easy. But it's like the way I looked at it was, let's, let's go for it. We can always return home. That's the way we looked at it. We can always turn back home. We've got family back home. And even living here, it's still hard because all of our best friends live back home and all our family lives back home. FaceTime makes it a lot easier for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's like here in Winnipeg, like my best friend is my wife and her best friend is me. Um, you know, we built up a lot of good friends in Edmonton and we still have a lot of friends there, but now we're in Winnipeg, a different city. And, you know, it's not as if you can drive a couple of hours. If you want to drive, you're driving... 13, 14 hours to get um, or you need to jump on a plane and then with COVID it's not possible yeah. um, so if you want to if, if anyone back home wants to go for it and like me and Albert we're certainly not the first um, and we won't be the last going across and giving it a go uh, Johnny Steele was actually before me he was at Wolves and then he ended up in Kansas and played for New York Rebels um, and he still lives in America. Um, and he played, he actually played for Minnesota that, that game that we were talking about. Um, played in that game. But yeah, it was uh, like, honestly, you could sit here for days and me and Albert could tell you so many stories um, about here. But now the team that we're with, we're in Canada. We don't go to America no more. But again, if any player wants to come over here, it's, it's like, oh, the Canadians are not good at it and the Americans are not good at football. Like, you'd be very, very surprised um, because in Canada here, we're developing players. You know, you just look at Rangers with Scotty Arfield playing, Alfonso Davies playing for Bayern Munich. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of younger players that's in the French League, the German Leagues now that, that you wouldn't have really heard of. Um, so the standard is getting bigger for sure. Uh, you know, but if any player wants to come over here, you know, make a highlight reel, send it to me. I'll forward on to the people here that can look at it and then hopefully get you a move because there's actually a Canadian player here. It was actually a couple of days ago. I got a message. He played, I played with him in Edmonton and he played for Ottawa last year. And Bohemians have inquired about him, the Bows down in Dublin. Mm-hmm. Uh, like well, what's he like and as a person and as a player and I can say look, I can't speak highly enough he's a quality player quality person and with the coaches that Bohemians have they're going to make him a better player you know and that was through who's that? I can't really say who the player is because the deal's Fair not enough. done yet in case it falls through for him um, I'm hoping it, it goes through in the next few days but it actually the, the, the point of contact came from uh, a player I played, Canadian I played with in Sligo, Chris Twardick. Mm-hmm. Chris went from Sligo. He, he came through at Millwall. He went to Sligo. Um, he wasn't having a real good season like to start off with. And I would see him in training every day. And 
left foot, right foot, the fittest player, quick, skilled. I'm like, he, he's, he's too good for Republic of Ireland. And, but some of our, some of the Irish boys, the Southern boys were like, he's a Jew, he's brain dead, because he's done everything 100 miles an hour. Yeah. I get to see him in training, he's leaving people for dead. He's scoring goals there right in centre, he's a right midfielder. So I actually took it upon myself. I was going through my, my A license at the time. I went over and says, Chris, I'm going through my coaching. I'd like to apply some of the stuff that I'm learning and put it to you as an individual. Uh, and actually, the majority of it was psychology stuff, you know, um, and little types of movements. And this was May. And we started working on it and training after training, and I would help him out. Because I played a right-sided centre midfielder and he played right midfield. So I needed him and he needed me along with a right-back in terms of that little, that little unit on that side. And all of a sudden, June comes, player of the month. July comes, player of the month. One of the best players in the league. A setting up goals, scoring goals. Um, then he goes to Bowes. Bowes signing, they finished third. They got to Europe, so they got more money. Their contract goes to Bowes. Plays half a season there, and team from Poland. They played. They played someone in Europe, and he played well, and ended up. He's in Poland, playing in the top league in Poland now, and he's he's excelling out there. You know, he's playing against some of the top teams in Poland now. So it was actually him who contacted me about him, and says like, Bohemians are interested in him. What's he like? And I just says it, give him a good recommendation, and and that's just how it works. So now. It's down to Bose to do their due diligence on them and if they want to sign them or not. Um, but again, I don't get any money out of it. His agent's going to get the money out of it. <laughs> you should do, um, maybe. <laughs> uh, this is not going to get the money out of it. But again, that's in terms of players that you've played with and stuff, um, sort of the good guys in the game, you always, you always try to help them out for sure. Um, and the hard workers that deserve a break because... You, he played in Ottawa last year and they've got a, a Spanish coach and he sort of wants to implement a different game plan um, and bring in more Spanish players because they're owned by Atletico Madrid. Mm -hmm. you know, so they've just signed a player in, in his position and they basically let him go. You know, and he sh Any other team should have snapped him up like that. But it's it, it does... It doesn't work like that here. It's it's works a little bit different. So now these Bohemians are interested, and I haven't spoke to him. I need to follow up with him to see if he, see if it's gone through. It might not go through. Someone else may come up. But again, that's just how the how sort of the ins and outs of it works uh, in a player side. Um, it's really interesting. So there you go. There's your homework for any uh, any player that's watching this and thinking about making the move. Get that highlight reel made up before you go and bother Daryl with your, can I come to Canada, please? <laughs> and that's the thing that it just so happened that my highlight reel, like you, you touched on adversity. Um, and the biggest bit of adversity I had in my career was Alan McDonald leaves Glen Torn. You know, uh, we got to the finalists in Tampa Cup. We didn't start well. And then Alan leaves and then Scott takes over. Uh, and in the following season, Scott obviously wants to implement the stuff and the club had financial problems. So it just so happened that there was me, Hamilton, 
Shane McCabe, Andy Waterworth, Richard Clark. We were the five top earners. So the club just threw the five of us on the transfer list. Um, even though we had just signed, I think we just signed like Keith Gillespie the year before, gave him, um, we signed Kieran Martin from Derry. You know, so we were signing, we signed players on more money that actually took, I guess, took the club over the budget. And then I found myself on the transfer list. And Linfield wanted, they wanted to trade me with Mark Miskimmon. Mark Miskimmon was at Linfield at the time. You know, so I'm like, happy days, no problem. And I was on a good contract at Glen Thorne because we just made the Satanta Cup. St. Pat's actually wanted to sign me. And St. Pat's were paying like really good money down there. Um, so I was able to get a good contract at Glen Thorne. Alan, I says, look, I'm happy here. And Alan was like, right, let's get it done. I got a real, real good contract at Glen Thorne. Um, but Linfield had a, they had a, a wage structure, mm-hmm. um, so to speak, that players couldn't really go over whatever their structure was. And I was actually, I would have earned more than every single Linfield player whenever I was at Glen Thorne, just so it happened. But because they had top players, you know, I was what, maybe you, you would probably class me as one of the top three, four players in Glen Thorne. But then when you look at Linfield's squad, like you're lucky to make the starting 11. Like that, that was the difference at the time um, in terms of the players that they had. Because I wasn't just going to walk in playing in front of Peter Thompson. You were walking in playing in front of McGrewer Galt who, and even Robert Garrett because they had just won the league. Mm-hmm. And they were dominating. They were seen as the best players in the league. You have to, when you go to Linfield, you have to go and fight for your position. So it ended up that Linfield made me an offer. It was basically half of what I was getting at Glen Torn. And I had a year left. And I had a mortgage to pay. And my interest rates just went up my mortgage. I couldn't have. I was like, I can't afford. And, and I was working in the Olympia Leisure Centre part-time. And I was like, I could possibly go full-time. But the shifts are, you do six weeks in the morning and then you do six weeks in the evening. We trained in the evening time. It, was, it wasn't possible to go full-time. I had to stay part-time or get another job. Um, but my goal was to go back to full-time football. I needed that extra time to do extra training. So anyway, um, I couldn't do it. And Scott Young and Pete Beatty were pissed off at me. So pre-season came, running the life out of us, put us through so much training. Um, Pete was in the military. You know, so he put through some military training. And at that time, I was, like, very, very skinny. You know, very fit as well. But the training Pete put us through, and I took it upon myself working in the Olympic Leisure Centre, I would actually do extra gym sessions after my shift. And then all of a sudden, I started to feel stronger, feel sharper. I could jump higher. Um, and for 90 minutes, and I felt like... I felt like it was full-time again back at Portsmouth when it was on top of the game. Whereas over the last, over the previous years, it sort of slid away playing part-time. But what that adversity done and the training done was even sometimes we would do possession games and I was stuck in the team that was always defending because Glenn Thorne still wanted me off the wage budget. And because it fell through, they knew that 
no one else is going to pick up wages. And I was saying, look, I want to go to Linfield. I just, I cannot put, do it financially at this moment. I need to juggle a few things in, in whatever it is, juggle a few things around. I can't do it right now. Um, because I, I bought my place at the height of the property market and it crashed. So the, like, I was stuck in the bubble and the interest rates changed a couple of years later and it killed me slightly. But then it ended up that the, the first game of the season came, distillery. Uh, Gary Hamilton was injured. They were still trying to get him alone to Ken Allen. Uh, Shane McCabe left to go to Portadown. Um, but Gary Hamilton was injured. Matty Burroughs was injured. Mm-hmm. Scott Young started to play a 4-3-3 the first time we sort of implemented it. And Andy Waterworth was our only striker left. But he wanted to play Andy Waterworth right midfield. So I went to Pete and says, look, throw me up front. He's like, you can't play up front. I says, I played up front for Mal Donaghy's under-19s team a couple of years ago and scored four against Serbia. He was like, right, I'll speak with a manager. <laughs> so the day before the game... I says the most obvious thing was put Andy Waterworth through the middle and put someone else right midfield. Uh, we had Andy Hall, who's a Glen now. He was a young player coming through. Mm-hmm. I was like, put Andy Hall right midfield and put Andy Waterworth through the middle and have Neil Gawley at the time on the left. You know, if, if you don't want to play me, but you can put me through the middle with a little bit of experience and I'll, I'll do a job for you. Like, I'll not promise you I'm going to play well, but I'll do a job for you until... Matty Burroughs or Gary Hamilton are back fit in the first game of the season came to Surrey. And because all that training I was put through and I was back to a level of what I'd done with Portsmouth, I was sharp, I was fit, you know, and I, I was never a quick player. Mm-hmm. I was never a strong player, but I was strong. And I was, again, I was able to take that touch away from players and get away from them again. And I scored five in that game. And as the season went on, I went back into midfield and scored some quality goals. I was able to have a highlight reel, you know what I mean? And pull them off the BBC Sport website. We didn't have the technology we had then. I was able to go on and, and pull it off. Now you can just, you, you can hit shift command and F4 or something and you can <laughs> hit the video now on your computer. Yeah, screen now record. You had to, to download the whole screen and, and crop it somehow. Uh, and Glenthorne had their own TV, Glenthorne TV at the time as well. So I was able to have a highlight reel and send that on to whatever club needed. You know, and whenever it came to moving abroad, you know, I was able to send it to Edmonton and basically get a, a trial type thing basis, but knowing that, you know, I'm good enough to play. What was your best goal on it? The best goal on it was probably... Oh, there was a goal down at Newry. Um, Hit it from about 30 yards straight into the top corner. And I'll just you can still see in the video, uh, Jimmy McGovern, he was playing right back for us, and he's just standing with his hands on his head. Couldn't believe it. <laughs> and I came out of half time, and Scott Young just he just shook his head and hit me a slap in the head. Was the, pitch, the pitch was terrible. It was striking it off mud, and I caught it sweet. But that year I scored... Scored a smasher against the Stillery, against Coleraine, away to Dungannon. Um, like proper strikes from outside the box, I caught them well. Uh, but yeah, I had a good highlight reel. 
and I scored 25 goals that year. So if you send a highlight reel with 25 goals in one season, you know, it doesn't matter what coach you are, you're going to look at it. Um, yeah. And then obviously I scored a few goals for Linfield as well that I was able to add on to it. And I had that on my computer that I was able to send at the right moment. And, you know, the right moment was me and my wife wanted to emigrate. And Albert was in the same decision. And like, I was able to send that across and sort of have an, get an opportunity um, and hopefully make it work, which we did do. Um, but for every young player, that's what you really need. You need a, you need a highlight reel because that's your cover letter if you're going for a job. Um, that's your evidence to show that, hey, I'm a half-decent player. But then the coaches have to do their due diligence to make sure. Because <laughs> remember at Edmonton, we signed a couple of boys or highlight reels. Like, a couple of them were playing against Ronaldinho and stuff. Like, class players. Um, but whenever you met on an 11, he wasn't that type of player. You needed him. <laughs> I'm a five-a-side, best player in the world. 11 11, he wasn't that type of player. So yeah. coaches actually have to go and do their due diligence and watch full games um, and stuff like that. But that's what you need. And thankfully, they have all the, there's all, you know, there's all stuff online now that you can watch, that coaches can use, like Instat and Scout And there's all different software programs now that players don't know that they're on them. Yeah, and they can scout them. But the problem is, is uh, as I said, some of the guys that the season here starts, you know, our starts and we're not starting till the end of May because of COVID now. But they're coming at the end of their season, and we have already filled up most of our most of our squad. So if you become available, there's very little room as an international player. Like the likes of us, we have used all our international spots, nearly every other team. So if, for example, a player in the Irish League wants to come here, there's no opportunity there. So the timing, again, it's all about timing. You have to, you have, to have your highlight reel and have it ready for come the end of our season, October, November, December time when teams are starting to sort out their squads for next year. And, um, and then that's whenever you're still in the middle of your contract back home. So you can you get out of your contract because no one's going to pay money for you. It's not the Premier League we're here. So that's why it's difficult as well. Um, and whenever me and Albert moved, it was, you know, it was the end of January. And Linfield were excellent about it. And he says, look, this is, David Jaffrey was excellent about it. It's a, it's a lifestyle change. Um, you know, you look, I'm still here. Obviously, Albert's back in Lauren, but I'm pretty confident that he'll end up back in Canada at some stage. Um, you know, he's enjoying his time at Lauren and he's, he's playing fantastically well. Um, he might see his career there. Um, or he might go into coaching there and then come out here. I don't know, it could be one year, it could be 10 years, it could be 15 years. <laughs> you just never know in football. And the same with me. Obviously, I'm here now, but... You know, I get offered a coaching job somewhere in a few years' time, and it's it suits me and my family somewhere else that we don't know. Um, that's, that's what makes thing. it so exciting, isn't it? It's exciting, and it's obviously scary as well because now I have a lot more responsibilities with a kid. Um, but again, 
any player, don't just think, oh, I'll send a highlight reel, um, I'll get a jaw or I'll get a team. And if you're lucky to, to get a team, abro- or a team abroad and go over and experience something new, you know, actually the hardest part is actually moving. It's whenever you have all your stuff packed and your room's empty or your house is empty the night before and you're and you're you realize you gotta get up the next morning it's going to bed that night thinking oh is this a good thing and you start having doubts mm-hmm. and it's natural and that's where you have to say to yourself i've made a decision i'm going to go for it and stick by your decision and don't have any regrets um you know so that's you know people get homesick as you said um I'm like I'm, I'm never the person that gets homesick, so to speak. Uh, I don't know why. I, I now it's like this is my home now, so it's fine. Um, obviously, I just miss my dad and a couple of friends and my mom, uh, family like that. But the game of FaceTime it makes it a lot better. Whenever I was in Portsmouth, we didn't have FaceTime or anything like that. You know, so the weekends were difficult. Mm-hmm. But now you like kids nowadays have got everything. To keep you occupied, um, computers, playstations, internet, phones, whatever you want, you just pick up your phone and you can do it if you want. Look at the two of us having a chat. You know, you're sitting there and I'm sitting here, and and yet we're able to see each other and do this. It's a, it's fantastic. Yeah, and that's a thing. And back, like, obviously, whenever I moved, we didn't have that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, whenever I moved to Canada, we did. We had Skype, but it was always jumping, and we cut off all the time. You're only 34, by the way. You sound like you're 54 oh. saying that. In my day. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing, because I'm looking at I'm, my whole team, all, all the players here now, like a lot of them are young, younger, in their early 20s. And, like, some of them even come to me for advice. And I'm like, what are you asking me for? <laughs> and I realize that oh, they've actually haven't been through that. You know, maybe it's even relationship advice. Mm-hmm. One of player saying, "Hey, uh, you know, if I if I'm still with my girlfriend, but if I have to move teams, how how do I manage that?" And I'm like, "Hold on a minute, I'm not, you know, I'm not a a, a love person, Doctor Phil or something." <laughs> yeah. So I just like, well, just to make it a season and go for it and try and you know, yeah. try and help them. But again, when whenever you're giving advice, you're giving advice, and at the end of the day, they have to make their own decision. Yeah, of course. Uh, they have to make their own decision, and whatever it is, um, and that way they'll grow up a lot stronger themselves because they'll be more independent. They make decisions for themselves, and will grow by trial and error. Mm-hmm. And the the best thing that you can learn from are your mistakes. Uh, when I said you were coming on this, Daryl Seamus Heath sent me a wee message and said he's a he's a great role model for any young player. Make sure you listen to what he says. And I can see why um, you've been full of great advice and that it sounds like you're a great asset for Valor, not just on the pitch, but around the club as well. Um, I, I could talk to you for another two hours, but um, we'll leave it here. And I just want to say thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Michael. And it's, I really appreciate it, you know, for me even just to speak to you as well. Like I hear your voice on the, on the websites all the time doing the game. And that. God help you. <laughs> <laughs> it's better listening to Andy Waterworth when he's on any time but uh, no thank you and I want to wish you all the best and hopefully 
at least one person can take something away from it, um, whatever it is. But, you know, believe in yourself. That's like Northern Ireland national team had the best slogan, so to speak, dirty dream. And, you know, the fans believed it and the players believed it and you go to the Euros, you know, and, and that's, what, that's what belief can do. Um, so just believe in yourself because there's not many other people that will believe in you, believe it or not. So believe in yourself and go for it and, and just keep improving yourself. Uh, that's all you can do. Thank you for listening to the Michael Clark Show podcast. You can follow me at M Clark Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Check back every Wednesday for a brand new episode, which you can download as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also watch the entire interview via my YouTube channel. That is youtube.com forward slash The Michael Clark Show. And if you like our theme song, it has been kindly provided by the brilliant SX70. Search for SX-70 on Spotify to stream their music. Until next Wednesday, take care. I'll speak to you soon.